Coming to you live from my apartment, this is Randy Bailey, and you are listening to the Survivor Historians, Mario, Jay, Paul, and Mike, who will be taking a closer look at the season of Heroes vs. Villains, which, in my opinion, took a nosedive after episode three. All right, here are four guys with absolutely no life. I can't believe they still watch this show. Take it away, Mario. And welcome to the Survivor Historians, the only Survivor podcast that gets less jury votes than Russell. As always, I'm Mario Lanza. I'm Jay Fisher, and Outback is the bomb. Other restaurants are available. I'm Mike Bloom, and I think it would be downright depressing to watch my black microphone turn gray without my little debaucherous historians. Um, and this is Paul Osselson. You cannot micromanage me. <laughs> and welcome back to part four of our coverage of Heroes versus Villains, uh, a very eventful season, a very fun season, and I'm already dreading that this may be a five-hour podcast, so hunker down, guys. We're going to be in this for a while. How, how is this going to be five hours? Before? Yeah, it's, we've never done it before, and nothing of note happens from here on out, right? Yeah, nothing. The heroes versus villains basically just coast to the end at this point. There's nothing going on, so we'll just we'll breeze through it, right? Nothing to talk about. It's just a strict pagonging. Nothing weird happens. There's definitely not like a letter that JT writes. There's nothing that happens. <laughs> Speaking of JT's letter, have you been stocking up on famous historical novels to reference in this part? I mean, no. <laughs> okay, thank you. I feel like we have to do like Treasure Island or something. Well, JT's letter is pretty comparable to like those old Civil War letters that's read on Ken Burns documentaries. Right. I, I was thinking of the Sullivan Ballou letter, you know, where like he's, oh, dear Sarah. And, you know, it's all super sweet. And then, you know, they drop the bomb that, you know, he's literally killed like a week after he wrote the letter. And it's like, yeah, thanks, Ken Burns. Yeah, that's what I was about, thinking. I'm sad about something that happened 200 years ago. Way to go. <laughs> I was thinking more of the letters that Nicolas Cage writes to his daughter at the start of Con Air, where he's like, dear Casey, I'm in prison. I was thinking more along. But Jay goes the historical reference. I go the Con Air reference. So more power to you. Well, you said historical, and then you referenced Con Air, and so I question your sense of history. Dear Casey. Good thing we don't have a podcast that references history whatsoever in the title, or else I'd be very much doubting your credentials, Mario. <laughs> okay, to start this off for people, as we left off, we have gone through three parts of Heroes vs. Villains, the internationally beloved, most famous Survivor season, and now we're on part four. And we just left off with Coach 
the beloved dragon slayer being voted out. Now, you guys said I could do like a 30-minute chilingua of coach, right? Yeah, actually, Mario's getting a hefty appearance fee just to come back onto the podcast. He thought that Heroes vs. Villains ended with Coach's boot, but we told them that, no, there was an entire other half of the season that featured Coach in a different way. Coach is uh, going to go into the Coach mode where he just essentially does a fashion show for a two-second <laughs> clip at the end of every episode. Yes, okay. I, w- I indeed was shocked. I had my Heroes vs. Villains DVD, and I, I th- again, like, I, like you said, I thought it was over when Coach got voted out. So I was shocked. I opened it the other day. I'm like, holy shit, there's like four more discs here. So it was exciting watching it for the first time. All right, that being said, we will start with Episode 9 in Heroes vs. Villains, and obviously nothing major happens in this one. This is only the JT letter episode. So you guys may have some thoughts about this as we delve into it, right? How are we still in the pre-merge? This is crazy. This is the last pre-merge episode, but we are still in the on Episode 9 in the pre-merge of Survivor Heroes vs. Villains. I think, did Cook Islands go the same length as well? It, I feel like that's the only one of the only other ones that like went more than half the season in the pre-merge. It makes me think that the audience should have a say in the pacing of our podcasts. Like, they should get a percentage of the vote how fast we go. Because we, we did not plan this very well, did we? Yeah, no, I think Cook Islands is the other one that, that does that. But one of the reasons why I love a season like Heroes vs. Villains is because there is so much, like, like worth put into what happens pre-merge partly because it's long but also because so much happens during that time whereas you know as the show evolves more and more it becomes so much more focused on pretty much you know we get through six episodes in the pre-merge and then we don't care anymore and it's all about what happens after the merge so because there's so much storytelling that happens here and the whole jt saga really spans two episodes it's really like yeah. these two hours would go really well together um and it kind of is the bridge between the pre-merge and the post-merge so um i'm excited for this two episode stretch we're going to dive into All right, we are about to dive into, as Paul said, the moment that was right after the season voted as the dumbest move in Survivor history, and uh, I'm sure we'll have some thoughts on that. So we'll start with episode nine again. Coach has just been voted out. The heroes have been, or the villains have been dominating this season. The heroes are making a valiant little comeback with their team of five, but there is a small chink in their armor, is that uh, as Rupert and JT keep telling us, there's a women's alliance over there, and they look strong. And JT is putting together a letter. He is going to write a letter to Russell, the poor sap on the villains that he thinks is a, a poor, hapless victim. And that's where we're going to go. So anyway, what's here? We're at, uh, the, on the hero side, JT has been caught finding an idol. The women of the heroes do not trust him because of that. They're convinced, all the heroes, that there's a women's alliance, a powerful, poverty-led women's alliance on the other side. And what just happened at the last tribal council is that Sandra worked her magic and got all this credit for voting out coach, even though she really didn't get him voted out because Russell didn't vote for him. But anyway, that's where we are going into this episode. Coach has just left, and now all the villains are stunned, especially Jerry. And that's it for part four of the podcast. There there we go, finally. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I mean, this is – I mean – it's sort of like turnabout is fair play for Jerry. She was the big swing vote to blindside Boston Rob. And for all this talk that Russell is going to give innumerably in the post-merge of like, I got, I'm going to get rid of this person's closest allies that I'm the only person that they got. I feel like the vast majority of the time, it was more correlation rather than causation that those people stuck with them. In this case, though, this is the one exception, because Jerry does legitimately say, like, well, now the coach is gone, all I have is Parvati, Danielle, and Russell. 
So I guess if you're trying to accomplish that, Russell made a good move. I will say he also um, might have gotten a bit unlucky in that the jury started at 12 and it happened to be, you know, the one person who he knighted and then promptly cut his head off with the sword in the last tribal council is going to be the one kicking off this jury that is going to just lay into him a month later. So, wait, so this is your argument, Mike, that Russell would have done just fine with the jury had Coach not started it off? It definitely didn't help, I should say. (laughs) I, I mean, I, I do, you know, if it was a jury of seven instead of a jury of nine, I doubt the votes would have gone the same way. But, you know, I, I maybe if things had gone a bit differently, I don't know, if things, a lot of things had gone differently, we're going to see Russell essentially implode his game over the next six episodes. But I would say it definitely didn't help that the person kickstarting everything was this one guy, Mr. Honor and Integrity, who Russell completely gets snowed by Sandra and decides to take him out in that moment instead of Courtney or her. Look, well, but I, I do think I do think Coach Going does feel Sandra's game because you know she really feels passionate about you know um, enacting revenge on uh, on Coach for Coach, right? <laughs> I'll throw him in there. I don't I don't even care about him, but I'll put him in there. Sure, why not? I I I don't know. Look, look here's the thing: uh, people who are huge fans of Russell Hans. You're probably not going to totally love the next five-ish hours of the Historian's podcast because, uh, you know, I think that for 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 better or for worse, this is not a great stretch for Russell in a lot of ways. But I think that there's also a thing where you sort of have to look at it two ways in in, in the sense that, you know, we're going to we're going to see Russell's quote unquote game explode and we're going to see sort of why Russell doesn't win heroes versus villains. But I think that it's a tune that we've talked about in Survivor Samoa. It's a tune that we've talked about several times, which is just Russell is so flipping mean for his own good. And nobody is going to really get behind somebody who is just so blatantly disrespectful and, and mean to everyone. And a lot of times people don't want to necessarily hear it, but it's sort of the case over and over again. But I think that there's another part. And I think that this is where people who are uh, fans of Russell come into play, which is more of just the, you know, how does Russell survive? survive? And, I, and I think Mario put it best in the previous podcast where it's kind of like great players don't dig themselves such a huge hole to begin with, you know, like on FOA FOA. And now, you know, just how he was on this on, on this villain's tribe that he was is, is that he's, you know, just behind the eight ball. And then somehow he kind of like claws his way and survives and makes it all the way to the end. And you can say, yeah, you don't dig yourself that huge of a hole to begin with. But it is unique to see Russell survive and make it to the end in these episodes. So I think that there's sort of two things to look about, look at, which is sort of how does Russell scratch and claw his way to the end while at the same time knowing he's never going to win? Yeah, well, and I think this is also, it's so interesting. I know that Russell's going to say in the reunion, like, hey, I only, I played one time, you know, 78 days across two seasons. But it's so interesting comparing his trajectory in this season versus Samoa, where he makes it to the end both times. Because Samoa, it's it was all about him determining who gets to the end and sits next to him. You know, his choice and what he felt were two quote-unquote weaker players. But in this case, to your point, Jay, one of the reasons why he survived so much this time is that everybody wants to take him to the end because they know they're going to win against him. And I feel like that has sort of been forgotten, especially by those like big Russell fans who are like, he went to the end twice. The second time was pretty much because he was imbued with the values that he keeps imparting on people like Sandra and Jerry. 
where people's like, oh no, Russell, you're the layup. You're the very easy person to win against. So rather than him being the one to make these moves to, you know, secure a spot at the end to get the votes from the jury, instead he's suggesting moves and people are like, I guess I got to go along with it because I got to keep stringing along Russell. He's perfect to say that's two in the end. See, I, I'd make the argument that he really hasn't done anything that bad in this season up to this point. And like a lot of the stuff he's going to get crapped on at the end is choices he's going to make after the merge. So up to this point, I don't think he's been a complete disaster. But yeah, almost everything that happens later will be his fault because A, he makes bad choices. And B, I would argue it's kind of a little dyad, him and Parvati. The way they play off each other brings both of them crashing down to earth because they both have these huge egos and I think brings them both down. But at this point, I actually don't, if like if, if the season had ended here and the final three is Russell, Parvati and Sandra, I think Russell probably still does. Okay. At this point. Yeah. And, and you know, we're going to get into this JT letter and I'm not jumping the gun here, but you know, you brought up the whole quote unquote dumbest move ever and stuff like that. If you look at this from their standpoint, I mean, we, as the audience have, the ability to be more omniscient. We can see everything that's going on. We can see all the things. We can clearly see that there is no really strong, powerful women's alliance that is going on there that Rupert and JT keep kind of going on about. And so you kind of look at this and go, well, they're jumping to the wrong conclusions. And then JT does something that is very questionable at best. But if you look at it through their lens, if you actually think that there is this powerful women's alliance, if you actually think these sort of things, you know, it's a move that can happen. And Russell, to his part, plays this up perfectly. And we're going to get into this. So there's a lot of good that's going on here uh, with Russell. And I think that, like you said, but I think that uh, a theme that I'm going to hit on from now on, and it's not necessarily Russell-centric, it's everybody in Heroes versus Villain-centric. It's this notion that when you play Survivor now, especially in these later seasons um, and such, and, and these seasons where people are going to... Um, uh, you know, there, there's chances for returning and things like that. And especially with this heroes versus villains, where it's an all returnee season with just these all star of all stars that are back here for the season. I think people really think about not just winning the game, but they're looking at, you know, how good can they look while they play this game? And so there's this sort of, uh, I don't even know how to say it, like this sort of bombast to their style. So they're, they're trying to all, not only make moves, they're trying to style these moves. And I think that it, it, backfires more often than it succeeds. Yeah, that's an interesting point because they're one of my gripes with Survivor over the years is that when it first started out, it was very it felt very authentic. Like that was kind of the thing that made Survivor different compared to other TV shows. It was very like actual human behavior. You're just watching average people responding to a crazy situation. And as the season goes along, they start playing more and more to the cameras. And I think that's an excellent point you just made that they're really going for style points and legacy in a lot of these moves. Just, I want to know, I want to make sure this looks great for TV because I know what they're going to talk about it on the message boards and stuff. So that's, that's actually a really good point. I hadn't thought about that. Right. Well, it's one of those things where like, ironically enough, the very first season came off the most like a TV show in a documentary format. And now we've gone to the point where the players realize they're on a tv show you know it's going mm -hmm. back to yeah. colleen's quote of like oh yeah like uh you know uh, the set's gonna fall down and we're, we're on a game show that's now sort of come full circle where the players are like i'm full aware this is a tv show i know i've been brought back if from some perspective because i'm an entertaining tv character let's 
give the people what they want. And maybe, you know, part of the reason why maybe Russell stuff is not necessarily acknowledged is because maybe if he's thinking more so about that to the point where he's saying, hey, a percentage of the, the popular vote should be included in the final outcome, he's not necessarily paying attention to the other people, the other, you know, the, the other entities that are there on the island trying to actually play with him. Yeah, that's that's a really good point as well. It's this is something I was I was going to bring up later in the podcast, but I do want to bring this up now. That people people have asked me because my this is my personal opinion, not your guys's, obviously. But like why I like the earlier seasons more than the later seasons. And it's one of the things that I always say is that like when when Survivor first came out, TV was very artificial. It was all you know canned laughter, sound laugh tracks. Everything is scripted. Then you had Survivor, which was like the antidote to that because everything was more authentic and it felt like real life. It was like it was not as artificial as everything else on TV. So it was like the outlier. It was like the rebel. And as Survivor has gone along and along, and people realize you know they know all the tropes, they know all the beats, they know what Probst is going to say, they know what the audience is looking for. That Survivor has become more artificial over the years where people are playing to the cameras, playing for legacies, playing for, you know, like the return appearance, playing to, oh, the game, the game is all important. They're always building up the game just to kiss up to the producers. And it's one thing that I've always said that Survivor eventually became the thing that it was rebelling against is that it's all it's a lot of it's just purely artificial playing for the cameras and legacies and stuff. And it's like nowadays you almost need a show that's real that 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 exposes survivor for being kind of artificial it's just one of the, well, a little thing i've said over the years that it's interesting what survivor started as and what it eventually came as and here in season 20 we're only like midway through the show's history maybe even a third of the way through the show's history however long it goes on but it's i always thought it was interesting to point that out that it eventually became what it was the antidote against well i think that one of the reasons for that and i mean i know we're going way off track from you know the the episode that we're trying to talk about but <laughs> Because Survivor was so successful in those first years, like you said, Mario, there was nothing really like it that was out there. There was no uh, reality game show that was out there, and especially one that felt so real and so gritty, right? Mm -hmm. But think about when, you know, since Survivor's kind of the, the genesis for all of these reality game shows that have happened, you know, whether they're like a game show where you win a million bucks like Survivor or something like The Amazing Race, or, or shows like that, but even shows today that are that are hyper popular and part of just the normal television lexicon, such as The Bachelor and other shows like that. All of that is a thing because Survivor is a thing. And mm -hmm. there are so many of these shows now. Survivor was so unique in what it was, but it was so popular that it spawned this entire genre of shows, some of which are game shows. But then there are shows like Keeping up with the Kardashians and, you know, the Real Housewives show where it's not even a game show or even a competition in some way like The Bachelor where people are competing for uh, to win, to be uh, in a relationship with a person, you know, Real Housewives and whatnot. It's we're just looking at these crazy rich ladies in this one area or or. Um, keeping up with the Kardashians is let's look at this really famous family that, you know, is this family of influencers and types. And it's like you sort of learn over the time and, and people always wonder, you know, you peel back the curtain. They're like, wow, all these interactions on the Kardashians are actually scripted and it's not reality. And it's like, yeah, they're television shows. And I think mm -hmm. that 
because the sh- this genre, because the show was so successful, it spawned this genre, and now you have something to compete against. So now you can't just be this authentic, authentic fly-by-night. Oh, we're just a, a documentary of people kind of going out there and doing an experiment. Now you have to compete with things. Now you have to be sensational. Now you have to have big moments. Now you have to have all of these things that you can't just kind of put people out there and hope it's organically going to come. Now you know, that the stakes have been raised. And in order to be part of the zeitgeist, you have to stand out in some way. Yeah, I totally agree with what you're saying. It's, I, I would argue the stakes have been lowered, not raised. But yeah, it's, <laughs> but it makes me wish. I wish there was another documentary show that would pop up and make everything else look artificial again. But well, it's lowered. It, it's lowered. But but I mean, it's raised in the sense that because there's so much noise now, yeah. you know, it, you know, it. it it's there are so many voices. It's now white noise. And so now it's a background. Now, reality television, and whatnot. It's not this novel thing. Survivor is this new novel thing that's out there. You know, it's just one of many shows. Right. So it's all just this dull white noise. But if you want to, like, break out from that, you have to do something really sensational. Well, mm-hmm. one of the things that it, it, this is talking about stuff we're going to get to in in this part, but it kind of goes along with this conversation we're having is and I don't know if it's because of the that these were all stars so they were more willing just to like call out the show when it happened but there were many instances instances um during this last stretch of episodes where the survivors were saying okay that's not like you did not show that at all at what had happened and i'll Mm -hmm. jump ahead to the the final six challenge that it was edited Mm -hmm. that it came down to rupert and Parvati, when it was really Parvati versus Jerry, but it was a better TV moment to have it be mm-hmm. Rupert as the last person standing, or the Danielle and um, Danielle and Amanda wrestling for uh, the note, and a, a couple other instances like that really come up this time. So I think it really, you know, this is a time in the show's history where it really becomes clear, like, okay, they're really, they're, I mean, it's always been manufactured and manipulated to an extent, but it just kind of is, it's just kind of where it's at now. The, the comparisons between I'm, – I'm excited to get to the end game in particular because the comparisons between All-Stars and Heroes versus Villains from a production standpoint is so interesting. And there's also a little bit of like weird separation to your point, Paul, between the audience and the castaways. We'll see it in the reunion, which I'm sure we'll get into, where <laughs> the audience you, you know voted Russell as the fan favorite, and you can tell everyone who was playing – on that stage, any sort of anti-Russell thing that was said, they were applauding. When Rob challenges him, he gets applause. When Russell says, you know, this is what uh, I want to say, why this is why I'm the greatest, they all groan. So, like, yeah, there may be some choices that were made in terms of the storytelling and really playing into this being so Russell-centric. To your point, Mario, I agree that I, I don't think he's really done anything too bad. In fact, we really lauded his uh, play to get Boston Rob mm-hmm. out. I think it's ironically enough when he meets the heroes that his game really starts to get downhill because I think bringing in a whole new group of people for him to play with gets his mind going. And in this particular season, when his mind gets going, it is not good for him. <laughs> okay, yeah, that there's a lot of topics we can go, side topics we can go to, into off that discussion. But yeah, we'll save this for the end. Yeah. Okay, so let's let's get into this episode here. So... Uh, this one starts very quickly. We just had Coach voted out, and now it's time for a reward challenge. And this is the Coach Wade Memorial Challenge, the perch, where people have to go up and balance. It's like a, 
how do, I'm trying to paint a picture for people who may not remember this challenge where they stand up and they're on these little tiny slivers of wood trying to balance in between like two sides of boards of wood on the side of them. And it's basically agony for their feet and their ankles. And this is the one that coach collapsed at at the end of Token Chains, to which Courtney, of course, the beloved Courtney references that by saying, hey, this is the one where coach fell down and said, there's some really great editing in these next couple of episodes particularly with the you know the cutting back and forth between the camps like for example (laughs) say what you want to about the villains really shooting themselves in the toe when it came to challenge performance uh, and getting rid of people like tyson and rob but they have a pretty sound strategy here in that they get the tree mail which says hey rank your tribe members from strongest to weakest and this is what the challenge is and they realize like oh yeah, Russell, as the heaviest guy, is not going to be able to hold his weight up. And Jerry says, oh, the heroes are probably so conceited that they're going to want to put all their guys up first. Cut immediately to the heroes' camp, and Rupert's saying, I'll be able to do great at this. <laughs> yeah, I have that circled in my notes, too. It's a wonderful little editor's joke that just driving the point home that the heroes perhaps are a little full of themselves. And now you will see why evil will always triumph. Because good is dumb. Because good is dumb. And good is heavier. That's the second part of the quote that they left out. (laughs) But yeah, Uh, first off, I got to point out the Courtney Goo quote. I use that to great effect on the Funny 115. I always love Coach saying Goo. I always put Goo underneath it. Coach never actually says Goo. Courtney is the only person who ever says that. So if you ever see that, that's actually Courtney misquoting Coach. So I just wanted to point that out. That's Courtney's like effect in Survivor history. She effectively Mandela affected Coach's <laughs> final stand in Token Jeans. Yes. I want every challenge from now on, Mario. I want you to tell me how you think Coach would have done at that challenge because you know you want to do it anyway. <laughs> I have a little flowchart all designed on my wall here. I'll just spell it out for you. Okay, so we go to the reward challenge, and this is the one where they have to balance up there, and all the heroes have put their heaviest guys at the more prominent positions, which is a poor move. And Rupert, of course, is still going on. <laughs> they, they got that women's alliance. It's looking kind of obvious. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> and so you just wish for he'd say yay or something like that. But no, he's going on about this. And then this is where we get a couple little scenes where uh, – Cor- uh, Colby is next to Jerry in their little yes. perch. Yeah, and it's Jerry's so like, good. hi, Colby. <laughs> Just a sweet little moment. And then right after that is Rupert next to Sandra. And he's like, love you. And she's like, whatever. <laughs> I mean, that's a great representation of their dynamic over the next few episodes once they actually come back together. And actually, I think Jerry and Colby as well. Speaking of the editing, I mean, I still think one of the biggest black marks, unfortunately, in this season is apparently the scene of Jerry and Colby finally building a bridge and coming together. A, an arc three seasons in the making apparently got sent on the cutting room floor. And so I think this is something in the funny 115 Mario, this, this moment, but you really have to sort of like hold on to it for dear life. Cause this is essentially all we get of the Jerry and Colby previous relationship acknowledgement this season. I I'm glad you said that. I have something to say about this Jerry and Colby storyline, but I want to save it for later. It'll be very controversial. Okay. <laughs> I'll give you a teaser. Jerry and Colby was never a storyline. It was only a storyline in Jerry's head. Well, yeah. <laughs> How is that controversial? 
because everyone thinks they were like the ultimate duo in Survivor history, the good noble hero and the evil scheming villain. Well, and their whole their whole subplot was a yin yang between these two giant characters. Now hold on, that's not fair because I think that you're right in the sense that if there was one person that made more of this thing than the other one, it was Jerry, and I agree mm-hmm. with you on that. But when you're saying that's that was never a thing and it was a thing that was manufactured, yeah, the game manufactured it. It's a TV show, they manufactured it. No. I don't think it's a thing that fans did. It's a thing that the show played up, too. But every, I mean, to this day, that's what I see everywhere. Colby and Jerry, Colby and Jerry, they're always mentioned as a pair. Yes. And if you and watch the show, they weren't in it. They weren't a pair. The pair is Tina and Colby. Jerry oh. and Colby is not the pair. No, but that's not the point. Okay, we'll get it. Jerry into is a side character. She was only a major character for four episodes. That's what was the get villain at. of Survivor Australia? After Jerry goes nobody, and that's the problem. That's why Australia falters, because she's a villain for four episodes. Then Tina shanks her and you know hits her in the back of the Achilles tendon and nails her. And Jerry is just a mockery. The rest of the season, they just make fun of her. And there's no villain in Australia, and that's why the second half is boring. But so who always... should have won, Colby or Tina? Let's open up this discussion. We <laughs> have all the time oh, in the world. Oh, to give another dumbest move ever nominee, apparently. Yeah, but I'm just saying that the, the, t- the Jerry and Colby thing was not a major subplot in Australia. It never yeah. was. But, but the thing is, and, and I'm, and I'm going to do this to close because I know we're going off topic again, but it was the most watched season of Survivor. It was arguably the biggest season that Survivor ever had was Survivor yeah. Australia. And Colby was good guy, hero, number guy. And Jerry was villain girl, number girl. And, you know, they were the two that people talked about. And you can sit here and talk about, oh, well, when you technically look at their stories and you look at the verisimilitude of their two things and they don't juxtapose, it's like, <laughs> The things that come out of that story is it was the biggest season of Survivor, the most watched season of Survivor. Colby was the was the guy everybody liked, and Jerry was the person everyone hated. That's the story. I would also say that, you know, I don't think what uh, – I think what helps, I guess, the burgeoning of the storyline as well is Survivor All-Stars when Jerry very specifically says, hey, I'm on this tribe with Colby now. I need to get revenge and get Colby out. You know, it, it's not like they're necessarily saying, oh, okay, duh, we didn't really get you know get along, but that's fine. Uh, it's Survivor All-Stars, let's sort of build a bridge and get over it. No, there's still this idea of unfinished business, and I think that's what they were able to make, I wouldn't say make a meal out of, obviously, but at least make a little bit of a snack uh, over the course of the season. Okay, I will I will say what led this on. Like, apparently now we've, we've backtracked <laughs> we've, or sidetracked. But you see, if you read Survivor history, and this drives me insane, again, we're the... We're not worthy, we're the only people to be able to talk about Survivor history, but we kind of know what we're talking about. But I see a lot of people out there writing about Survivor history these days that clearly don't understand Survivor history, and it drives me insane. And the one that drives me crazy these days is the retroconning of Jerry, is that you see this a lot. Oh, Jerry was really the hero of Australia. And, like, she did nothing wrong to anybody ever. She was the sweetest person ever. And Colby was this huge asshole. And they, they break this down into this with the story of Australia, that this wonderful salt-of-the-earth woman, Jerry, got this shitty edit and all this crap thrown on her for doing nothing bad. And Colby was, meanwhile, a jerk. And that's the whole story of Australia, that the editors just fucked Jerry. And I'm like, that's not true at all. Jerry was a wonderful villain for four episodes and then she's a laughing stock. So it's like this retro conning of Jerry really makes me think about this differently. That's what, that's how this kind of came about. We can talk about that another time. Cause I have opinions on that <laughs> as we, well. When we but... go back around to Australia yeah. again, we can be, we can cover it then. <laughs> no, we'll save it for when Jerry gets voted out. Cause there's a lot out to say about this. Okay. So we go to the perch challenge and we see Colby and Jerry and we see, you know, Rupert and Sandra and, 
And we see, of course, JT leaning over to Russell, telling him to hang in there, buddy. And Russell's over there praying. And just, I, I love this. I mean, I love Russell as part of the season, to be honest. He's, they, he's do, they do such a good job throwing those little scenes in leading up, which I didn't realize even until this watch and how, like, how those little interactions they really <laughs> highlight. Leading I up feel really people. bad. I feel really bad in the future because, you know, we've, we've hammered over the, the this point that Rupert keeps pointing out that there's this woman's alliance and it looks really strong and we're all laughing over here because there totally isn't, right? Mm-hmm. And, I mean, that's so consistent for Rupert. I've said it so many times in this podcast. He's such a consistent person. Like every – you know, it's just how his edit and how other people are framing around him that sort of changed the view on Rupert. But Rupert hasn't changed at all. I don't know if Rupert's ever had a clairvoyant thought on – any sort of survivor strategy or anything that's ever gone on there. But I feel bad because, you know, inevitably Rupert's going to be brought back for like the 23rd time on Survivor. And there's going to be some time where he's going to accident himself into the right thing that's going on. And and and, and someone at this point is going to listen to our podcasts and, you know, learn basically go, you just can't trust anything Rupert says about strategy ever. And he's going to be right on something. Just I mean, Jay, look no further than like four episodes from now when he puts a rock in his pocket. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's yeah, so clever. So so you're saying Rupert is completely consistent. He never changes. So vis-a-vis, that means Rupert still thinks there's a women's alliance. Probably. <laughs> and you're saying he has nothing clairvoyant about him. So what he needs is a shambo chicken dream to perhaps jog his memory a little bit here. I mean, let's cram more references in there. Can we can we get a can we get a Bob from Gabon sort of reference in here as well? Well, to be fair, yeah. Sandra has a very I mean, she's not going to hump the air, but she certainly has a very lascivious reaction to the reward of Outback Steakhouse. Outback Steakhouse is the bomb. Yes. The, well, again, thank you, Sandra, for the intro to part three, where she referenced that we will never be invited to Outback Steakhouse. But yeah, this is the Outback Steakhouse reward where the winner of this challenge gets this huge feast from Outback. And Sandra, no dummy, she immediately starts pimping out the sponsor of the episode <laughs> and mentioning it as many times as she can just to make sure she gets airtime. I just laugh because meanwhile, we talk about how so many people on the show are are um, just wanting airtime. They say things to get famous, to get brought back. No, no, Sandra doesn't care about that, but she will. She will, uh, you know, start changing how she's talking just to get some free gift cards to uh, to Outback Steakhouse. That's the only time she starts playing it up for the camera. And uh, do we have a little Survivor Historians trivia here? The last person to do that when the sponsor of the reward was mentioned and one of the players immediately started touting how much they love that product. Who would that be? The Doritos? Yes, no. Jerry, our friend Jerry. Well, there's Doritos, but Jerry's the one. Do the do, baby. I love Mountain Dew. <laughs> she starts quoting Mountain Dew. Do well, the it, do, baby. Is it the one that's off the cuff? But remember in Survivor Palau, like when they got the uh, the scope the or whatever? Oh, no. Oh, the oh yeah, yeah. Or whatever, the, uh, and Ian is like talking about how he loves the the flavor of this mouthwash or whatever, and I'm sitting there going like, "What am I watching?" Uh, yeah. Now we have an Ian reference, so we're pulling out <laughs> this random references. This mouthwash is so tasty, it makes me want to give it to Tom. Well, I'm glad they, I'm glad survivors come around with how they're treating their sponsors after the whole Yao Man debacle. Um, I was really hoping they weren't going to start giving away. Okay, I'll give away my Outback steak if you give me blah X Y Z. No, 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 Paul. There's now there's idol clues now in those stakes, so they're hot commodities. You can't give them away. That's right. That that was the trick. You know, if back had it been it had it been more idol crazy, and they they knew like there had been like idol clues hidden inside of the car, Yao Man would have never given it up. It so makes in, order to, in order to try to move this podcast along, we've talked about you know with the strategy. The villains win. They get Outback Steakhouse. Let's go to the feast. All right. Very good. Although it makes me wish. 
makes me wish Randy would still be here so he could be talking about how much he loves Black Angus more than Outback. Because I know Randy would do that. There's there's some a badass Sandra moment here where, you know, it's her against Rupert. And poor Rupert, it, even though he claims, you know, I think he got a little bit of modesty. We did have him say he was going to be great at this. He ends up getting put in the number five spot against Sandra. But he gets the worst challenge for his toe possible, which is put your entire body weight on your last two toes. Uh, so there's probably a lot of very, very jagged Jay by the end. But, you know, Jerry says to Sandra, like, yeah, you popped out some babies. This ain't nothing. And then just Sandra replies, two of them didn't even get an aspirin, uh, which is just such a, again, this is like a big, Sandra's really had a nice coming out party, I think, starting last episode, but this is just some Sandra fun. I think she's having fun now that she was able to get one over on Russell temporarily. And this is the only challenge in history that Sandra will ever beat Rupert in. So there you go. All right. So Jay, in keeping with moving the podcast along, thank you. We are now at the Outback Feast, and the villains have crushed the heroes. They have won three to zero, and they go get their Outback Feast. And Sandra, of course, at the feast is talking it up how much she loves Outback. Give me that homie. Give me that homie. Just taking all this food. And, oh, good. We're going to get an idol in this scene because our Parvati finds an idol clue in her napkin. And this, uh, if I believe this is also one where they make fun of the heroes for all the talk about the women's alliance. They just sit there and bash on the heroes. Yeah, I think they use the quote, I'd stake my pirate life on it. <laughs> yeah, so, they, so, they, they love the imagery of Rupert as a pirate. I think it's during his uh, the Rites of Passage when they're like, Arr, Rupert. So I think both <laughs> Rupert and everyone around Rupert still has an image of Rupert from 2003 rather than 2010. Oh, as if that image has changed. Come on. What do you wear? Is like a formal tie-dye now? It's different? All right, so this is where Parvati finds the idol clue, and she tells Danielle. She's like, look, I found an idol. And Danielle's like, oh, should we tell Russell? And Parvati's like, no, let's not tell Russell. Tee-hee, tee-hee, it'll be funny. Which, one would argue, this is probably why Parvati doesn't win the season right here. Yeah, this is, I mean, this is tough because you would think on paper, like, I mean, look, Russell definitely has his power trips of needing to know everything about everyone at all times, especially in the post-merge. But honestly, I think what Parvati does here is so, I think it's completely emotional. I think she's Mm -hmm. getting a little tired of Russell. And we'll see that later on in the episode where like the two of them start to argue. And I think she's just a little like, "I, I don't need him making every decision and knowing everything about me. So let me just hide this idol clue. And I think, to your point, I think that what she does in the next episode, which I think we'll certainly talk about, you know, the ramifications and the impact that Parvati's double idol play is going to have. But one of those things, it's it's going to set up that own Parvati seed in Russell's head of like, hey, you should get rid of people close to Parvati because she's doing stuff without you. So I think that, unfortunately, this was something where she was getting a little tired of Russell's control and decided to do this, even if it's not the best thing to do strategically. You know, maybe if if you find an idol at, like, the final six, it's fine not to tell, like we see with Sandra, but I, it seems like this was one that wasn't really uh, necessary at the time. See, I'd even go bigger picture than that, and I would just say flat out, Sandra wins this season because she's better at dealing with Russell than Parvati is is that you'll see this over and over again. Sandra will kind of lip off to Russell, but when push comes to shove and like it's nut cracking time, she's very deferential to him. What are we going to do? What's the plan? Oh, let's do this. Oh, yeah, I'm, you don't have to worry about me. I'm perfectly fine. Yeah, I'll do whatever you want. And Parvati's always a little more mischievous with him. She just likes toying with him, playing with him, because she doesn't really take him seriously sometimes. And I would argue that's why she wins in the end, because Russell, 
will take down his own game by the end. He takes down Parvati's too, but it's always the argument, was it Parvati's fault? Was it Russell's fault? I would argue a lot of it is Parvati's fault because she just does not deal with Russell as well as Sandra does. And that's a big issue right here where she starts messing with Russell and hiding things from him and being all giggly, which Russell will, as you will see, will not like one bit. This is so interesting, though, because that's almost the reverse of how the jury views it. You know, I feel like one of the reasons why Sandra wins is because she really represents this anti-Russell value that the jury mm -hmm. shares. Whereas Parvati, they feel like, is uh, someone who is, you know, with him lock, stock, and barrel. When, as you see, to your point, Sandra is definitely the person that, you know, is playing up what Russell thinks of her. Of like, yes, sir, I'll do whatever you say, sir. I'll ju just, you know, keep me around. Whereas Parvati, to your point, does push back a bit more, but the jury sees the complete opposite. I, I, I feel like I have to say this as well, and I don't I don't want this to sound like a knock against Sandra because, you know, I, I do love Sandra very, very, very much. Watch what you're going to say here, Jay. Careful, Jay. sinks ships, Jay. I've said it for a lot of times that Rupert is one of the more consistent characters we've had on Survivor. I would argue in a lot of ways that Sandra is also consistent in the sense that with her, a lot of times it's what you see is what you get. And she touts that, you know what I mean? Like if she doesn't like something, she's going to say so. And she's not going to necessarily like be super fake in some ways. And, you know, she's going to, you know, may try to eavesdrop on conversations. And she's always talked about this anybody but me strategy, which I think in a lot of ways comes into such an advantage here. And I don't necessarily think it's because she's trying to deal with Russell better than perhaps Parvati is, mm -hmm. but she just naturally does because she doesn't like him. And she flat out says, I don't like Russell. And everyone around her, everyone around her knows she doesn't like Russell. And so she gets that anti-Russell strategy with the, with the jury. But as Mario just pointed out, when Russell is trying to control the vote and what's going on sandra also has the okay as long as it's not me strategy so you know she's not actively trying to go against russell so much in all of her vote strategic uh sort of stuff because that's not how she plays she plays in the whole yeah i'll go along with it as long as i go three more days and so she sort of has the best of both worlds here no that's a very good point and right before we started recording this podcast one of our listeners said be sure to point out how Sandra's gameplay just works better with a jury than Parvati's and Russell's does. And I think you just kind of crystallized it pretty well. I think that was that was very well said. Yeah. And, and that and I, I didn't I wasn't sitting here going, oh, it's bad Sandra and whatnot. But it's like that's the whole thing with Sandra. And, you know, that's why, you know, in subsequent thing, things, you know, we we talked about, you know, at, at the end of Heroes versus Villains, Sandra is the only person that has played this game twice and won it twice. And, you know, she was two for two and it was the sort of thing. And it's like, at some point you, you sort of figured that at some point Sandra was inevitably going to go back on the survivor and it wasn't going to end in a third victory, all of those certain times. And it's because at some point someone's just going to sit here and say, look, this is Sandra. She's a two time winner. We need to get her out. And, you know, Sandra is not, you know, her, her, anybody, but me strategy is such a great strategy, but it's like, if someone's actually going to, you know, actively target her because she's a threat, there's not much you can do at that point. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, but, but she's just going to be herself. And I think that that is, you know, just like anything it, it's, is, you know, Rupert can't help, but be, be himself. Whereas Sandra is not going to try to be anything but herself. This is who she is. She's going to tell you what she thinks, but she's going to go with you on strategy because that's what she's going to do. Yeah. And again, predictability is a very underrated trait in Survivor. If the other players know what you're going to do, they don't fear you. 
Yep. And like, I think that would be Russell's argument. Like Sandra thinks logically, this is in her best interest to stick with me. She's not going to do anything. So he was never worried about her, even though she's actively plotting against him. He can see at the end of the day, she's going to go where the numbers are. So I think, yeah, to your point, it, it very much helps her that people can predict what she's going to do. Yep. All right. So we have uh, Parvati with this idol clue, and she's only going to share with Danielle. And again, this is going to be a major, major factor in how this season plays out. But we'll go back to the heroes camp, and the heroes have just lost the Outback Challenge, and they're kind of bummed. And this is where JT tells them, you know, if we, uh, if I get to talk to Russell at the next challenge and we win the challenge, I'm going to give him my idol because remember JT has an idol and he won it, but the girls know that he won it or he found it and they're a little leery of him and JT's a little leery of people trusting him. So he's got all this big master plan, which I know we'll get into get into this, whether this was a good move or not, but his plan is if we win, I'm going to give the idol to Russell and I will say, save yourself from this powerful female Alliance that probes sold me on back in the Micronesia previously on segments. And that's his whole plan. So all the other heroes, some of them kind of go with it. Some of them kind of don't. I know Amanda thinks it's crazy, but Candace is like, well, at least JT won't have the idol. So like, it's not just people think it's a, like a, everyone unanimously says, oh, this is a great move. There's different thought processes, but this is where JT decides and we'll have much fun with this over the next couple episodes. Is this the biggest risk in Survivor history? Either that or Papa Smurf trying to hold out for All-Stars 2. <laughs> A little thing called All-Stars 2. Yeah, I would say this is the biggest go big or go home move in Survivor history. And I would I would never call this the dumbest move because I, th- I, I can see his thought process. But it is a very big move with a very spectacular chance for failure if it doesn't work out. Yeah, it's, it's, high, it's high risk, high reward. And the high reward is very unlikely. I don't know about very unlikely. I mean, unlikely. I don't know about very. There, there was a chance. I mean, if you, you don't know this guy, you, again, it's, I hate to bag on probes. No, I don't hate, but to bag on probes again, he has done such a masterful job of convincing everyone that Parvati is this legend. And the black widow brigade was like the greatest thing ever through micro that I think everyone believes it. So I would blame probes even a little for this. Well, you could also, you know, credit, Russell's performance, his sort of sad sack, hang in there, kitten poster uh, way of acting once the heroes are very overt about it. You could also credit the fact that they don't know Russell. And I think I talked about this last episode that I think had anybody seen Russell Hans in even episode one of Samoa before going out Mm -hmm. to play heroes versus villains, they do not give him that idol whatsoever. And that's why I think they concoct not only this plan, but there's one thing to concoct the plan. There's the other to have this expectation, as JT says, that, okay, they'll vote off Parvati, then we'll pick off the rest of the villains, and Russell will be voted out sixth, and he'll be okay <laughs> with that. Like, I feel like that yeah. might have been one step too far in the thinking with the plan. <laughs> yeah, that part I don't buy. And, th- and that's the part that I talk about, like, the highly unlikely in the sense that, like, you can understand their thinking and you can even see like if they pass this thing and like Russell votes out Parvati and you know, the, these things sort of happen for the heroes, you can really see that line of thinking, but it's really tough when you're like, we're going to do this huge move to save this guy and then we'll vote him out sixth and he'll be grateful. And it's kind <laughs> of like, this is an all-star season. You kind of got to hope for better than that. 
Yeah, I, I do have to point out, and this is something that comes up in the reunion show, and I hate to, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, where JT defends his decision here, where he's like, I knew I wasn't in good standing on the heroes. I wasn't the high, the top one there. I had all these people on the other tribe that I wanted to ally with, and they all got voted out one after one after one, like Coach, Tyson, Courtney. He's like, all these people that would be my potential allies down the road were all getting nailed, and he's like, I'm screwed. He's like, I'm not in a great position. Even if the heroes take this game over, I'm not going to win because I'm the odd man out. The girls don't trust me. So he's like, I had nothing to lose whatsoever. I mean, it kind of, again, it fucks up the game for everybody on the heroes. But for JT, he's like, it didn't matter to me one way or another because I wasn't yeah. going to win the way I was going. So I can actually see his logic here. And I, this, this to me is the, the other side of the coin. And maybe you can talk about it being uh, them trying to be styling for the camera. But I would even argue not necessarily that way. But this is sort of this new personality of Survivor and this bigger thinker in the sense that, you know, when the game was more, I mean, you, I, would, I don't, I hesitate to say the word pure because it's not correct but you know in, when it was in its earlier stages right you know and and pagongings were more of a thing that happened and and uh, this was sort of the way things went you could see the people who knew that they were the next one to go and you know the the show didn't necessarily show them scrambling but you they showed them sometimes a little bit where they're just like i don't suppose you'd change your vote and go with me and do this other thing and everyone just kind of laughs and goes <laughs> no no we're not gonna do that oh okay and you know you know, the, the show will try to whip up some false hope somewhere. But, you know, that person eventually goes home. And I think that, you know, in this sense, JT's like, at some point, I'm just going to be the victim of somebody the way this goes, because I'm not doing well with the heroes. Um, the, the the people on the villains that I wanted to work with who, who would probably work with me are not going to be there. It's not good. So instead of going quietly into that good night, JT's like, I know what I'll do. I'll just do something really, really, really out there. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of the opposite way of, you know, just passively going, hey, do you think you could switch your vote? He's going to actually shake up the game, which really ruffles the game way more than just passively asking. So in a, in a way, it, it's a, it's a it's such a boon for what's going on there on the island. It shakes everything up. But on the other sense, it's like, dude, JT, just 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 try your just do something else, will you? Well, that's the thing, though, is that I mean, ostensibly, this is the first time JT has ever been on the back foot even looking yes. at token sheens him and taj and steven and joe were you know down six to four at the merge but even then as soon as you know the vote comes out they're like the the timbira people are like oh great get rid of brendan get rid of tyson get rid of coach and jt i think even says in his day after video he's like in in brazil i knew where every single vote was going and i wonder if the idea of not knowing that is freaking him out to the extent where he feels like he needs to do this. Uh, which is, again, it's, it's so weird that he felt like he was in such danger on the Heroes Tribe because we saw several times people were saying that he was in a power position on the Heroes Tribe just because, if you're talking about authenticity and predictability, nobody knew where he was coming from whatsoever. He was the wild card. He kept jumping between alliances. And maybe part of that was just him freaking out at this notion of, I don't want to be on the outs of a vote. And the biggest thought of him doing that and possibly getting booted at the merge is him saying, all right, let me take preparatory me measures by going completely off the wall with this move. That's an interesting point, Mike. And I never really thought of that before in the sense of he never knew how to play, you know, from a position of uncertainty. Mm -hmm. And that is 
that's such an interesting concept because everybody at some point is blindsided by something. Like even if it doesn't necessarily affect their game in the sense that they get voted out for it, something in the game happens and they were like, boy, I didn't know that. Now I need to, you know, talk to people and figure some things out. Whereas as you just pointed out, he knew everything that went on at token chains all the time. And so the fact that he's playing uncertain, that's, that's really interesting that this is his reaction. There's another variable I think you can throw in here in that JT has one survivor already. So like he doesn't really care. Like it's it's not one of these he has to save his legacy or anything like some of these other people like, you know, a Tyson or a Boston Rob. He's already won. So it's like, you know, fuck it. I'll just go big with this move. And if it doesn't work, whatever, I still have a win. So I, I think he had a little uh, leverage of uh, freedom in some of his moves that other people might not have had. And you were talking about uh, the individuality of stuff as to why JT particularly would make this move. You could also argue that with some of the heroes, Candace, for example, you know, if maybe if she had spoken up about it uh, more, it wouldn't have happened. But as you say, she's one of the people that's like, well, we were a little sketched out by JT having the idol in the first place. So that's a good way to for him to get rid of it. So she sort of, and she'll show this very soon as well in her own survivor career, sort of like, help herself and in essence also screw herself at the same time yeah and that's something i'm glad we bring up because that's something that cannot be overlooked in this that some of the heroes were totally in favor of this for other reasons just get that damn thing away from jt so there was a lot of different uh, things going on here okay so jt starts sitting down and writing his letter to russell and this is where we get maybe my favorite quote in the season where colby just colby? walks up yeah, yeah where colby. colby walks up and jt's like treats him like a little five-year-old colby's like you writing your letter to Russell, buddy? <laughs> what you do? What you doing there, Scooter? <laughs> uh, and when I see this scene, all I can think is less is more. Like, if this is the move you're gonna make, if this is what you're gonna do, go for it. But just, I mean, just the amount of detail in this just makes it so embarrassing on so many levels. This letter is so incredible. First. The penmanship, because JT is like, you know, this this Alabama cattle rancher that you would you, you can barely understand about 40 percent of what he's saying. So you think he'd be able to he'd be like scribbles on paper. Right. But he has the nicest yeah, Alabama pen- cattle rancher that like literally eats like what Salt Bay serves. You know what I mean? Like it's just <laughs> literally like, you know, I eat beef on top of beef. Yeah, he said he eats like thousands of steaks in his lifetime and he has such beautiful cursive handwriting that you're sort of like, I mean, if the police had done, like, handwriting sampling, they would be legitimately surprised and not finger JT as a suspect in any case that he was a part of. Because, like, there's no way this guy would be able to write as neatly as he does. <laughs> yeah, this guy, it's all girly and it's got horses on it and stuff. Like, Amanda wrote this. There's no way JT wrote this. That's Amanda. It's got the Montana horses. It's got the girly script. But, yeah, he's he's got the girliest writing ever, and it's beautiful. It's like you could frame that letter as Russell later does. It's pretty. Yeah, and I, I just, don't know. I, I've, I've got pretty nice handwriting. I got, I got, I, I'm not going to lie. All right, Jay is going to have to write us a handwriting sample. We will post it. This will be Jay's beautiful handwriting sample, and we'll compare it. It'll be like the Pepsi Challenge up next to JT's to see who has more beautiful handwriting. It's different. Well, I, I always wondered good. from, I guess I can ask both teachers on the panel here. I mean, how passable does your handwriting have to be as a teacher, considering how much you still do stuff by hand? Uh, Paul, do you want to talk about you? Because you, you teach, you teach <laughs> foreign language here. Like, you know. Well, well I, I, I in German. Really, you just have to write angrily. No, I got really, I had 
um, when I taught um, kindergarten, I had really good handwriting. You really think about like every single little, uh, like little piece of the the writing and stuff like that. So I feel like that's carried over. But then sometimes I like walk into some teacher's room and I see like the chicken scratch on the board. I'm like, oh, those poor kids, <laughs> those poor kids. Uh, I would I would go so far as to say that for the most part, like, you know, a lot of what is done in the school is not done via handwriting as much anymore. You know, especially if you teach an English class and things like that where you're writing an essay, like sometimes you are writing an essay by hand. And especially if you're teaching AP or something like that, because for the AP tests, it's still just like if you took an AP test 15, 20 years ago or so, you know, you sit down uh, at the AP Lang test and you write essays for two hours, right? And it's not typing, it's not anything like that. It's writing. And so, you know, penmanship does count in the sense that, you know, it needs to be somewhat legible, but it can be printing, it, it can be cursive, it can be anything as long as it is legible. And a lot of the assignments that kind of go on now are done via uh, via computer. You know, usually you have, you have some form in Google Docs. There's a thing called Google Classroom that, you know, has uh, like its own sort of, uh, advantages that teachers can have with assignments and turning things in. So there's a lot of stuff that's just done digitally these days because the world's digital. But as far as handwriting or something like that goes, you know, it, it's it's literally just, hey, make sure that someone can read it. <laughs> Little did we know going into the season that when he was in college, JT had a double major in animal husbandry and calligraphy. So good for him. The uh, he, One of the rare people that can think with both sides of the brain. I'm trying to remember. So in terms of the, the, the paper that he uses, I was trying to remember because I believe that the heroes got their like luxury items because that's where James got the, uh, the the two idols. I guess someone had brought a notebook, right? I guess they figured that since Fallen Comrades was a no-go anymore, there was no threat in having someone own a notebook in the game. Was it JT's girly paper too, like My Little Pony or Peppa Pig or something? Oh, I feel like I used to know this. I remember because um, Candace has a, had like a white polar bear stuffed animal, and um, what if he I used it on to know this. Bear instead, do you think, do you think <laughs> well, it would have been as subtle? <laughs> I would have passed you a polar bear. <laughs> then Russell would have like ripped off the head and like, ah, there's an idol in here. Could you just imagine Cole being like, uh, "Hey, Russell, uh, JT's gonna give you a stuffed animal after this challenge. Just, just, just play it off, okay?" Hey, JT, you're writing your polar bear, buddy? <laughs> this this letter is so good. Okay. Yeah, it's so good. But I also feel like, okay, uh, the comedian uh, John Mulaney's got a very nice little stand-up stretch where he talks about how, like, you know, in the days before television and the internet and things like that, like, people just were so bored. They just did, like, these things that you would not think about where, like, they would, like, stand on the dock and, like, wave at ships. Mm-hmm. You know, just nobody's on them. Nobody I know is on them. I'm just going to wave at the ship. Okay, let's do that for an hour and a half. And it's like, this is literally the result of the fact that you are out on this island and you literally have nothing but your thoughts and the game of Survivor and a couple of chores to do. And it's literally like, as Paul said, less is more. But it's like, this is our entertainment and you're just going to go for it. (laughs) And I love that they're goading him on as he's writing. Like, Colby, hey, you're writing a letter? And then Rupert's like, this is your chance to show you're not a villain. <laughs> like he's just throwing in terms that JT can put in the letter. <laughs> I well, I love what the, I love particularly the start of JT's letter. I mean, there's still some really fun stylistic choices, like him underlining Parvati's name 
to make sure that <laughs> Russell is aware of who he should be writing down. But JT trying to essentially start – it's sort of like the, the essay structure like you were speaking with Jay. Like when you learn to, read, to write persuasive essays in middle school, it's like, okay, you need to start with an introduction where you start with your points. And so JT starts with, Russell, this is a huge turning point in this game. This isn't fake. I wouldn't waste your time or mine. Just by competing against you and the few handshakes we've had, I feel like I can trust you. So essentially, he's trying to convince Russell to, to you know, accept this cockamamie move in those first three sentences of like, this is who I am. This is who I think you are. And this is why you need to do this. It was a dark and stormy night. He's yes. starting with like preamble, like four score and seven years ago. <laughs> yes. The JT letter, one of the funniest things that has ever happened in Survivor, except no imitations. And before we get to that, I have to have their interject or intercut within the scene is Parvati actually going and finding the idol that she's going to hide from Russell, where she says, Russell's not the king, I'm the queen, and the king usually does what the queen says anyway. So again, we're going to intercut JT just being an idiot with Parvati building up this paranoia that Russell's going to build up over the second half of the game. So like everything that happens in the second half of the game will start literally in this five minutes of this episode. Do we need right. to do the whole letter or is Mike's opening good enough? I think Mike's opening is good enough because it's a very, I think JT had like, it's like six pages and there's like footnotes and shit. Like, I don't think we need to read the whole letter. No, I, but, but I think speaking of Ken Burns, the crossfade that they do between the actual letter and JT writing it is just very, <laughs> I mean, it's very, uh, it's very unconventional survivor editing, but it's understandable given this is a completely unconventional move. And to be fair to the heroes, after the letter is done, they're still like, I don't know if we could pull this off. And granted, it's still at this point conditional on the villains losing the next immunity challenge. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, so this is one of the things I love about Survivors, that I know the producers can't rig every challenge. But I know, I love that this one, that the heroes decimate the villains. And not only do they decimate the villains, there's plenty of time for people to stand next to each other on platforms. So this whole letter thing will work out smashingly. So I just love how it all works out here. Yeah, so the heroes win the immunity challenge, which is some generic puzzle challenge just repeat right, rinse but, repeat but to be fair you know if if they they weren't standing next to each other and if the heroes didn't win the next immunity challenge and there was no opportunity for jt to pass said letter and the letter never gets passed we don't see it on tv yeah of that, course yeah. that becomes like a survivor urban legend of like oh apparently jt had this big plan that he was going to send the idol over to the villains but it never happened which is fine because jt became the first two-time winner of survivor yeah. <laughs> yes. We never saw the mythical polar bear that he passed to Russell. <laughs> yeah. So so anyway, yeah, the heroes win and Colby's like, JT's gonna give you a letter. And Russell's like, Oh, oh thank God, my hero. And and then JT passes it to him. I wish I could shake your hand. And Colby's like, there'll be plenty of opportunities to do that later. <laughs> <laughs> because, right again. Because, because credit. we can't we can't really go out of the camp and run. So, you know, all we can do is stand around and shake hands. I mean, that's all we can do. <laughs> I feel like that would be like Colby and Frank Garrison's like wet dreams, respectively, of just standing around camp shaking hands for hours at a time. <laughs> I want to see Russell. Have I ever broken the promise of a handshake? I want to see Russell bragging about it afterwards. I shook the hell out of his hand. Nobody ever shakes hands like I do. So, 
So yeah, so JT passes the letter to Russell, and we get this confessional. Now, the villains are going to tribal council tonight, but that's not really even the subplot of this episode. Now it's Russell's like, I cannot believe people are handing me idols. You don't hand Russell hands an idol. And now we get the famous scene, which is probably the funniest one in this episode of Russell and Parvati getting together to read the letter out loud and laugh at it and laugh at JT's girly handwriting. Well, it's another great cut, though, because at first it surprisingly goes back to the heroes because we never usually go to the uh, winning try post immunity challenge. But Rupert's like, I think Russell is beaming with excitement. He like Ru- Rupert is so gleeful. He's living his best yay right now. <laughs> and then it just cuts immediately to Parvati laughing her ass off while reading JT's letter with Russell sitting right next to her. <laughs> All right, so who wants to start on this scene? <laughs> Paul, we'll start with you. I'm going to call on you. Paul, comments on Parvati reading the letter with Russell. <laughs> I wasn't raising my hand. Um, yeah, I mean, like I said, this like this this whole story that happens over two episodes and we're still only in like the first half of this, like the dramatic reading, the 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 little ad-libs that she adds to it, the reactions of everyone else sitting there and laughing at it. Like it's just it's just it's amazing television. Like Parvati is, Parvati is a great um, storyteller. Uh, I like. She adds the uh, BFF forever XOXO JT, and it's funny <laughs> when I mock this. I make fun of JT's letter all the time in the funny 115. Even if you've read my book, when it was worth playing for, on the very back cover, I have a little mockery of JT's letter back there, and I always sign it BFFs XOXO. But that's Parvati's. Uh, addition to it that's actually the so i will give parvati credit for the comedy there she added well and and she also adds the thing about the because you're like whatever at the hands of an all like male like or an all female ring female alliance yeah she's like i added that which is like okay like so obviously they've like rupert's won't shut up about this enough that like (laughs) that they're like they're adding that you know that's like that should be our commentary at home but no like even the villains have heard this so much from the heroes that they're able to perfectly add that into the the reading of this letter well something that wasn't added though that i love is jt actually pulled like a mission impossible and wrote destroy this after reading which (laughs) is bad it's so bad fucking it's funny so like could you imagine russell be like oh crap oh yeah can't can't find the girls stumbling upon this and realizing that jt gave me an idol guess i better and the fact and the fact that he had to add act like you're going home <laughs> yeah and parvati with the perfect capper at the end here she's like what is he in fifth grade he's passing notes she's like i can't believe that kid won <laughs> i'd love to see like you know you know russell like gets voted out or something like that and JT comes and then JT gets voted out at some point and they're in Ponderosa and JT's like, what happened, man? I gave you the note. And Russell was like, you didn't tell me to destroy it after reading. <laughs> yeah, I passed it to Parvati. You mentioned her yeah. name. You saw it underlined, so I thought I had to give it to her. I mean, God, if you had just told me I had to destroy this secret note of, <laughs> of deceit, then I would have. Then I would have. But I didn't think to do it, and I got caught. JT. Yeah, you explicitly outlined every single instruction, so I was following it letter for letter. <laughs> that women's alliance was so strong; they sussed out the letter, they found it, and they they read it. It was terrible. But you know what? I'm Russell Hands. I read the hell out of that letter. No one's ever read a letter biting about me. Okay, let's get into the controversy here. There's a huge controversy here that I get shit on over all the time. Do you guys know which one I'm talking about? Is, yeah. this, the, is this the rumor <laughs> that apparently Parvati read the letter over and over and over again, even in the company of heroes? 
yeah, this this will be printed on my headstone how often it comes up in regards to me. So so Sandra, in one of her Rob has a podcast appearances, said, well, you know, the why, the reason Parvati and Russell didn't win is because they would take that letter out and they would read it in front of the heroes and mock the heroes openly. And Sandra said, that's why nobody voted for them to win, because the heroes just thought they were assholes. So when I wrote the funny 115, I quoted Sandra that, oh, apparently Parvati and Russell read this letter out loud in front of the heroes. And to this day, I still get emails almost every day about that, telling me to delete that. That's not true. Parvati would never do that. Parvati has denied that. I don't know what happened. I'm just quoting Sandra. But that's where that all came from is Sandra is the one who has quoted this. And I don't know if she's retracted that story or what, but it's this rumor that's been going around for years about why Parvati loses heroes versus villains. Thoughts from the peanut gallery, perhaps. I don't know. I <laughs> yeah, I mean, we don't know. I mean, obviously, it's like whether, like, okay, like, so, like, just from as long as I've tracked Sandra and stuff, like, she's not someone that would, like, in the interview would just flat up make something up. Like, I can, I know that she's not necessarily someone who, like, retells every detail 100%, but obviously, she's referring to some incidents, whether or not that actually meant that Parvati was sitting and all the villains took out the letter and right in front of them read it to make fun of them. Like, I don't think we know exactly what it what it's like, but I take Sandra at her word that the way they acted talking about that letter once JT was gone was like something that made the heroes mad, that pissed them off. And I don't think it really matters of, you know, what the theatrics of it were. The way they handled the um, you know, that whole situation obviously was enough for them not to, you know, want to vote for poverty to win. I mean, I would say that I think that Sandra, while she is authentic and speaks from honesty, I think she could have the capacity to exaggerate. I could see the legitimately be like a middle ground where one time, let's say when it's like Colby and Rupert left as the heroes that Parvati's like, oh man, you know, I'm sure they would laugh about JT writing the letter and Parvati's like, oh yeah, let me bring it out so I can read it again and, and talk it over. So I could see a situation where like it happened, but it wouldn't happen like right after JT's voted out, Parvati says, gather around everybody, let's read the letter. But I also wonder how much this letter informed the way that Parvati treated the villains. You know, because I, I don't think it's, mm -hmm. it's mutually exclusive that, oh, Parvati read the letter over and over again, and Parvati did not have the best treatment of the heroes. I feel like those two complete, completely different things, and I honestly believe the latter more than the former. And it would make sense. If she has a letter from an entire tribe basically being like, hey vote off Parvati, I could understand why she might take a bit of offense to it and how she might be a bit tired of it, because as she'll talk about in her final tribal council, she's been a target in this game since, like, day three, and so if she's saying, like, these these people on the other tribe don't like me, it would make sense from her perspective as to, well, if they don't like me, then why do I necessarily need to treat them, you know, if they're not treating me the same way, which, to your point, in, in a game, especially in an end game, that's going to be dictated a lot about how others about how, you know, the people in power are making those that are not in power feel, it's not necessarily the best move. I think that Mike is is probably on the case here because if if I were to make a logical guess over something that I have absolutely no idea about, I would have to say that the truth probably lies somewhere in between of both accounts because people who are... Um, oh, okay, first of all, everybody that is like emailing Mario about stuff Mario says like Mario says stuff just to piss people off like that's literally what he does <laughs> so like 
you know, basically going, you said a thing and I'm a, you know, I'm pissed off by it. It's like, you're literally playing into his hands. Number one, number two, um, you know, those of you who are saying Parvati would never do that and had Parvati did not r- repeat the letter out ever in front of the heroes and would never do such a thing. So you're basically arguing that they got this ridiculous letter from JT. They had a gigantic laugh over it, as we saw on camera. So, I mean, we saw this. We saw them laughing about it and saw her mocking it. And then she literally was like, OK, I'm never going to mention this in any context ever again, ever. Which seems not about, you know, it doesn't seem right because this is literally like the big form of entertainment that they've had out there. But on the other hand, I think that it's also probably not true that Parvati is basically saying, all right, everybody, let's gather around for today's reading of JT's letter and we're all going to share in this together. Because if that were happening, we would have seen something like that. You know, I don't think that's something that they would have uh, kept off the air. And I think that probably Mike is right in the sense that maybe Parvati mentions the letter in passing for something, or maybe she like, you know, quotes a, a, a section of the letter or some sort of like thing in the letter, like, you know, uh, this is a turning point in the game or, you know, says some sort of thing in the letter in passing, you know, in front of the heroes in a mocking tone. But maybe she even didn't. Maybe she didn't mention anything in the letter. But I think that what Mike is talking about in the sense that clearly they think that this is horrifically dumb of JT in this letter and they just think this is the stupidest thing ever. And I think that this absolutely uh, influences her her treatment of the heroes from that point on. And I, and I think that to say otherwise is to probably say an untruth that this absolutely uh, influences how she treats the heroes from then on, because the thing that you, the thing that you have to reconcile is okay. Parvati would never do such a thing, but at the end of the day, none of the heroes liked Parvati. Why? Yeah, Yeah, that's very true. That's the thing I was going to end with it, that, yeah, none of us knows what happened. And this kind of drives me crazy because we're doing a show called Survivor Historians and we're trying to document Survivor history. And what Jay said is right. If you know, like the funny 115, a lot of times I just write stuff just to cheese people off. And I know poverty fans don't like me, but on historians, I do try to be very fair and I try to document history. And I will just say from a human behavior perspective, I do not buy that poverty just pulled out the letter and wrote it and read it at, at, on a whim, like Jay said. It's just, she, people don't do that. But yeah. to follow up also what Jay said, they did not like Parvati one bit, and there was probably many reasons for that. So I'm sure this letter came up in other forms somewhere or another. I don't know. Again, we don't know this. Nobody knows this stuff. It's not black and white. And I will even throw in a third variable here that nobody's mentioned yet, is that after the season, I know Sandra has taken a lot of crap over the years from Survivor fans that say, you didn't deserve to win Heroes versus Villains. And I know people have said that openly to her and on message boards and stuff. And she's, you know, very proud and very mouthy. She does not like people telling her she sucks. And that has kind of been her legacy over the years that people just say you didn't deserve to win. And after Heroes versus Villains ended, it was Russell deserved to win. And she's like, fuck that. And then people, the story has changed over the years and now it's Parvati deserved to win. So I can totally see Sandra getting, you know, Chinese water tortured for years. Everyone's saying Parvati was so much better. She should have won for years. She shows up on a podcast. And the first thing she wants to do is bury Parvati and point out why she sucked and why she had no business winning. So I could see Sandra embellishing that story a little bit just because of all the crap she's had to deal with. But at the end of the day, there was probably some truth in there somewhere. Just nobody knows what it is. Have we completely covered all our bases? I think at this point, yes, though, definitely more Parvati and Sandra stuff to come, luckily, because I know this is uh, where Sandra is the most in danger over the course of this entire 
season is how it's essentially between her and Courtney. I think this is where Sandra first brings up the rice and beans comparison between mm-hmm. her and Courtney. But yeah, basically, uh, you know, it's it's up to the trio plus Jerry to decide who to get rid of. And it's Courtney and it's basically Courtney because of the existence of Amanda. That's literally yes. the only reason why <laughs> Courtney goes here. I forgot about that. Okay, yeah. This is the one point in the game. Sandra was an incredible amount of danger. She could have gone. It's really a coin flip. Who's going to go on the villains? One of the two weak ones, Courtney or Sandra. And I had forgotten about that, that it has nothing to do with Sandra. It has more to do with Courtney having an ally from China over there, and we don't trust Courtney one bit. She will flip. So that's the only reason Sandra survives here. And even as a huge Sandra fan, I have to acknowledge that. Well, and also to add to it, I mean, there's nothing nothing that we necessarily see about it, but I would imagine if we know there's – Sandra has her friend Rupert on the other side, so I feel like Sandra has done enough, not that we see that much of it, but enough for them to feel like they're more worried about Courtney flipping over to Amanda than than Sandra flipping over to Rupert, who she goes back with, you know, for how many years like that. So yeah. I, I do think there, you know, Sandra was doing something right there, but it is kind of funny that it just comes down to, oh well, Courtney knows she's friends with Amanda, so. But that's but that's the fun part too is that so Courtney tries to make a pitch by actually using that fact by saying, hey, <laughs> Parvati, Amanda's more likely to come over to us at the merge, but the irony of it is that she's pitching to Parvati also has a relationship with Amanda who also <laughs> went to the end with Amanda and whose relationship with Amanda is actually going to be very well utilized for her game next episode. So I fortunately think that Courtney's only ace in the hole was the thing that they used against her in this moment. Yeah, I, I would say there's all probably another variable here which we don't see in the episode. I'm just guessing this based on human behavior that Sandra has probably been a little better at being deferential to Russell. Oh, yes, sir. Yes, I'll kiss your butt. Yeah, we'll do this. And I don't think Courtney can do that. I think it's a little more obvious when Courtney doesn't like you because she's snarkier and she's got a little sharper tongue and she just isn't quite as, I hate to say that Sandra's diplomatic, but Sandra's a little more diplomatic than Courtney. I'm guessing that there's a little spookiness in there as well that Courtney has not been very shy in pointing out how much she hates Russell. Hmm. That's my guess. Yeah, though there's one person who's very anti-Sandra Correctly so, because I do think that of the two, Sandra is the more dangerous player. I think she's the better talker, uh, and it's Danielle. And it's very much, in my opinion, like what Sheehan attempted to do with like the, the person I'm voting for in All-Stars is the one who's you know the most dangerous person. I think Sandra's really trying to beat that drum for Sandra, but nobody's really you know listening to her at this point. But Survivor history would be, would be changed in so many ways if they had listened to Danielle in that moment. Though... I mean, it seemed like had they merged that Courtney would have very much flipped over to the other side and would have voted with the heroes. But maybe that still means that villains get to the end of the game because they had two idols on them. Yeah, I, I should point out, not just Danielle, Parvati also. Parvati will continually throughout this rest of the season point out how dangerous Sandra is. And she's the one that says here, she's like, Parvati says, I can keep Courtney in check more than Sandra. That's, so that's what she was, why they should keep Courtney. So it, Russell kind of overrides everybody here, I believe. Okay, so let's go to this tribal council. This is a fun one. It's a fairly insignificant one in the season, other than Coach's fashion choice. But okay, but first off, I have to point out a neat little because as a Survivor historian at heart, I love to point out when history repeats itself in Survivor. And this is something you may not have noticed. I always love this scene though, where we go to tribal council, and Russell says, "You know, I got lots of friends on this tribe." And Jeff says, "Who?" 
And Russell says, my friends are Danielle and Parvati. And she snubs somebody, which is very ironic, the person she snubs, because the person she snubs is Jerry. Now, if you go back to Australia, there's a very, very similar scene where Jerry does the exact same damn thing where they said, who are your friends on this tribe? And like Jerry says, oh, I like Amber and Mitchell and she snubs Tina. And that's like the reason Jerry loses because she snubs Tina and then Tina like backstabs her the next tribal council. So I just think it's a neat little, you know, history repeats itself where it happens to Jerry where she is the unpopular fat friend that they is not named with the popular kids. Yeah, it's a weird sort of like they Sandra and Courtney use this tribal council to sort of like, you know, uh, I, I get their their pound of flesh from Jerry. Where, you know, they're saying, oh, yeah, Jerry and Coach were part of Rob's group. And Jerry's like, oh, no, 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 I never was. And Courtney's like, well, you voted with us against Parvati that one time. And, you know, I, I went into this podcast and I went into this rewatch trying to remember. I'm like, oh, yeah, Jerry, I think, was a, a really good player. It definitely played her best game in Heroes versus Villains. You know, she definitely would have won had she gone to the end. I think she very easily could have won if she'd gone to the end. But I forgot how many mistakes jerry made and i feel mm -hmm. like the comments made against her in the tribal council are part and parcel and to your point mario that even though she's like oh well i guess i'm in now with this trio this trio is like mm, okay we'll <laughs> use you but i don't know if we really need you yeah the key word there jerry is trio <laughs> trio there's three of us well it's tough because this is but the, the way the season is going is that Ultimately, what's going to happen, I mean, we're not there yet, but the, how this is going to shake out is that this is going to shake out to where Russell and Parvati are riding roughshod to the end. But because of what has just happened and because Russell is Russell and because Parvati probably is influenced by this letter somehow and stuff like that, they're just extremely unlikable. So you talk about, well, Jerry would have won if she went to the end with them. But it's like at this point, anyone's going to win if they get to the end with them. So this is not one of these like, oh, you're so strategic and you sneak in there. And that's why a lot of people like you know, uh, crap on Sandra and all that sort of stuff, because, you know, we all talk about how Sandra, you know, and what she's so good at is surviving all of these rounds of elimination. But, you know, Sandra's just the recipient here at the end of you're not Russell and Parvati, which, you know, hey, that's legit. You won, you know, so, mm -hmm. you know, you talk about, yeah, Ru Jerry's not playing super great here, but Jerry's in the mix to be there with these two at the end. And, you know, that's a thing. That's a thing that you can talk about. Especially when there's a final three, you can easily slip in there with two a-holes and it'll work out for you. No, oh, yep. yeah, let, put, put a pin in that until Russell randomly decides it's going to be a final two and decides to get rid of Danielle for that reason specifically. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Russell, he will make some questionable choices. Now, speaking of questionable choices, let's talk about Coach here because I know everyone wants to mention it. This is the Coach's fashion show, as you mentioned at the start, where it's for his first appearance on the jury and he comes out, it can, it can what only be described as a uh, what is it, a Japanese kimono? God. <laughs> it's like, fetch me my warrior mumu. Like, what is this? He comes out, he's full-on yoga-ing over there in the jury. It's like, coach is one of Coach's greatest moments ever. And the, the robe will never make another appearance in the rest of the season. But I, I love that it makes its first appearance in his first jury moment on the season. Are we having, Ponder are we having Ponderosa by now? We're having Ponderosa, this, right? Yeah, and, that, and that's the thing. is The reason why it only came out this one time is because this is the only time where Coach did not have someone else around him to say, why are you doing that? <laughs> Otherwise, this, but, is all, this is all Coach depending on his own gut and his own right. taste. And so he's like, this looks great, and nobody's here to disagree with me, so I'm going to walk into tribal wearing this. <laughs> Is it kind of bluish colored? I'm trying to picture the color in my head. It's black. Black. I was going to say, because 
color scheme wise, maybe he thought it was going to be on the heroes tribe and like those, their outfits are a little more, you know, blue, black, darker colors. Oh, imagine if you wore red. that in the game. <laughs> that would be so great. Well, I guess, the, I guess the question I have is, did he bring this from home and this is his personal wardrobe or cause I, 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 okay, this is me not doing great research, but I didn't watch all the Ponderosa videos before we uh, started this. I have seen them at some point, but I don't remember. But, you know, in the Ponderosa videos that is now a thing on Survivor now where we get these like little clips that you can get on CBS.com or YouTube or wherever you can find them uh, where you see the eliminated people. And, you know, that usually there is a conversation or something that happens the night when there's a vote off and then everyone's talking about it. And the person who just gets voted off, you know, gets gets weighed. They get checked out by the doctors and then they go to the place and they like eat a bunch of food and talk to everybody and sort of debrief the game. But then they talk about like, you know, sometimes they go on adventures, right? So like they go into town and they go to markets and they go to things. And it's like, did coach go to a market and like find this and <laughs> buy it and wear it? Or did he already have it and decided to wear it? I I'm think you know the answer. Yeah. You know the answer to that question, Jay. He, of course he had that. How, how do you think Coach didn't have this? When I was watching, I did watch the Ponderosa videos from this season. And yeah, Coach uh, Sears like sends everybody like a box of toiletries. Apparently Coach expected to go to the end of the game so much so that he didn't pack like nearly anything. So maybe that's a that's a credit to you, Jay. But uh, we don't we don't at least really see him go into the uh, into a town. Instead, he apparently just explores the jungle to get quote closer to God's heart. Okay. <laughs> I thought maybe they took like a side trip to Diagon Alley and he like mugged a wizard or something. <laughs> I don't I mean. You know, so he mugs Stevie yeah. Fishback. Is that what you're saying? Yes, exactly. That's Fishback's pajamas. But no, you know what? Coach Call really me needed? a muggle. <laughs> you know what coach really needed ironically was tyson being there to offer him life advice such as do not wear your formal kimono to tribal council now we so know one the time value, we know now the value of an assistant coach <laughs> exactly tyson he was the one who dropped the ball there all right so now we've talked about coaches coaches gear let's uh let's let's vote somebody out for the love of god all right courtney courtney's voted out see ya Oh, I don't want Courtney to go. She, she was fun for some sound bites. She's going to love being a juror. She's going to ha have the best reactions because you can tell just her general distaste for Russell and everything that he does is going to show plainly on her face over the course of the, the post-merge. I mean, she was one of the under-edited characters. Uh, she had some funny moments, but unfortunately it pales in comparison to all the gold she brought us in China. We, we've eulogized Courtney before. We eulogized her in China, and I and I believe we talked so highly of her in China. And I can't say enough great things about the character of Courtney uh, in Survivor. It, Courtney is gold. I love Courtney. I, I want Courtney on my screen more than most people on my screen and whatnot. But you're right, Mike. She's she's subdued here because there's so much going on in the season, and there's so much that the editors want, and there's so much that Propes wants you to see and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, Courtney, unfortunately, is not influencing this game in some high degree, and so a lot of her stuff probably ends up on the cutting room floor, which is, I'm not saying it's it's a it's a travesty or something like that, but it's a shame because she's there for funny moments, and we got some, but we didn't get a ton. And I'm sure there were a ton, we just didn't have time for them. Yeah. It's a shame, but it's also not a shame because as Courtney herself said after the season, she was so jealous in China because she never got to be on the jury. Yeah. So she never got to parade out in front of people in her new fashions every, every tribal council. So she was having the time of her life doing her little fashion show. So good yeah. for her. And, and being in a rock band as well. That was her other dream, right? <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, we don't we don't really get into Ponderosa clips too much, but for people who have never seen it, yeah, Coach and Courtney and I'm assuming JT. I never saw them, but they they formed a rock band in Ponderosa called the Dragons. Oh. And there's clips out there if you want to see it. I, I've never personally seen it, but I've I've heard good things about it. They're glorious. Not to get They're too. Great. I mean, listen, we're, we'll get sidetracked because that's the theme of this episode, and we haven't even gotten to JT going home yet. But essentially, it came out of it was raining one day, and so because it's 2010, they played rock band, and coach being the musical guy he is was so inspired to come up with this band and so they spent like a whole day before tribal council like writing a song recording it on some producers like garage band mac laptop and they actually produced a music video the thing that people forget about that i realize upon watching all these ponderosa videos that is not the only dragon song in fact Pretty much every round of Ponderosa videos features at least one song from the Dragons that backs up some sort of scene. There's a scene where like they go to a, cl- a nightclub and there's a Dragon song. Uh, there's one where Coach and JT do one kind of solo where JT plays the guitar and Coach sings about slaying people. Like the Dragons had a much more profound effect on the Ponderosa game this season than I think anybody remembered. Yeah, Coach kind of started rock and roll, if I recall. All right, let's let's move on. So JT has written his letter to Russell. They have mocked the crap out of him. And now we go to the episode where JT gets voted out, which coincidentally is called Going Down in Flames. This is a fun episode. So guys, high five. We hop, we finally hit the merge. So the previously on segment at the start of the, uh, the merge episode where it says talks about Russell and Parvati both think they're the ones pulling the strings and making the moves. Meanwhile, outcast Sandra is just trying to survive. And this is, again, where Probe starts eulogizing. what's the right word? He starts inserting himself into the narrative where he says, uh, Russell kept the idol and his allies with a brilliant double cross two episodes ago. And I should say, Probes, when you're recapping the season, please do not use the word brilliant because now you're putting the idea in people's heads. So that's I just want to point out one little Probstism there. So as we get into the merge, one interesting thing, and one thing that's, again, going to determine not only Sandra's attitude, but I think everyone's sort of uh, image of Sandra, especially sitting at the end here, because, you know, the villains, when it's merch, you know, the the heroes get a box, the villains get a key and say, hey, you're the hero's camp, to, you know, you're the, the, you're the key master, they are the gatekeeper, you want to make Zool come out of it, and then you become heroes and villains, uh, but the villains decide, like, okay, we uh, we need to concoct a plan so that we can, you know, say why Parvati's here and Courtney isn't. But they leave Sandra out of that plan. Mm-hmm. And this episode is going... This, this and the next episode, essentially, are going to be about Sandra attempting to work with the heroes. And you'd have to imagine this is sort of a nice microcosm of that. Where here they're coming up with this big, airtight yarn that is going to completely pull one over on half the people in this game... And they purposely leave out one of their tribe members. And so I think if you're looking at Sandra, you know, Rupert's going to say in the final tribal council, like, I don't think you're a villain. You know, you're honest to the people that you're honest to. This is a key example of that. The villains come up with this big plan to, you know, pull one over on the heroes. And Sandra just happens to not be a part of it. Yeah, very questionable tactics. Although there's a couple funny moments at the start of this episode I want to zip through here where, where the villains have this whole plan. Like, well, we have to decide how we're going to, our story is going to be though, how we didn't play an idol or how, how, why, why Russell didn't go home. And our story is like all these idols were played and it was crazy and like it was, it was madness and that's the only way Russell survived. And so they go to meet the heroes and the first thing is JT sees the Parvati still there and Russell's still there. And JT goes right to Russell and says, 
wow, I bet a lot of idols were played last night. Like he, JT goes for their lie before they even present it. So <laughs> J, JT's always one step ahead of them. Well, wow, there must have been like four idols. And Russell's like, yeah, it was crazy. Well, who are you going to believe, Sandra or the, the, the truth? Yes, exactly. So they all get their treasure chest of merged food, and there's like a huge ham wedge in there and wine. A giant pig head. Yes, the pig head. And the, uh, the, they get black buffs. They're all black. And they are – I love this little interchange where we need to think of a name for our new tribe. And Jerry's like, how about all villains? And Colby's like, <laughs> Colby, really? Really, Jerry? And then Rupert, really, Rupert Jerry? of course, the benevolent Rupert, will chime in with, we're all positive. We're all winners. <laughs> and then I, I also like Sandra's idea. We could be the Hillens. Yeah, which is so – like. I would say it is the stupidest name, but considering we're about to get into uh, Boston Rob's whoopee name two seasons from now, I, I the Hillens would also just be the weirdest portmanteau. I mean, Yin Yang is weird because they say it means good and evil when it definitely does not mean that whatsoever. But the all villains also would have been. I don't. I have no idea why Jerry said all those. I think maybe just to get the goat of the of the heroes, just to really set them off. Okay, now a thing that happens. As Survivor goes along, you know, we, we talk about sort of the 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 way that this game is what it is now is not what it used to be. And, you know, sometimes that's for better and sometimes that's for worse, but sometimes that's just for necessity. And there are things that, you know, we have lamented on this show um, to the fact that, you know, they don't always do um, uh, fallen comrades and they don't always do, you know, rites of passage and they don't always do these sorts of things. And sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. And a thing that was a very big staple of the early seasons of Survivor was the fact that when the Merge tribe comes, they come up with the Merge name, they come up with the Merge flag, and they come up with this new, like, Merge identity. And that's sort of a thing that has kind of, I mean, it's it's a thing that that exists somewhat, but, like, it's fallen by the wayside. And you can talk about how, like, oh, no one does this anymore, but it's, like, literally at this point, they're like, I guess we'll do something. I guess we'll do yin yang. I guess it's a thing. And, you know, with Merlonio and with other things that's going to happen in the future, it's like the people in the game have killed this tradition. This was less about, mm-hmm. you know, what the producers have done. And it's just more about the players going, none of this matters. This doesn't matter. We don't care. Yeah. Sandra's like, let's name the tribe. Fuck Russell. <laughs> no, that was a joke. She does not do that. So anyway, yeah, that's a- <laughs> you had to call him dang Russell. Dang, I'm sorry. Yeah, we had to edit it down a little bit. Or did so, Parvati go, let's name the tribe. This is a turning point in yeah, the game. Exactly. The entire tribe is just the, le- is the, the, the entire Just JT's the letter. letter. <laughs> the tribe name is like four pages long. The whole I would letter. love that lower third is just an entire screen. <laughs> they, just XO, take the, they just take the paint and use it as glue to like stick the letter onto the flag. <laughs> But there's there's some weird conversation going on here with the Hillens. Just catching some like random minutia going on. Jerry and Colby talk catch up about how she welds and built a covered wagon at some point. <laughs> Amanda talks about to Russell and Candace about how somebody had a worm in their butt. Uh, I didn't know that Big Tom had made his way onto the season, but I guess he did in some capacity. And this is where Parvati's like, I feel very weird, but like Parvati, I would not judge you if you don't take part in these conversations because they're very strange. <laughs> okay, yeah. So the the gist of this scene is that the heroes are all there and they all want to congratulate Russell for surviving. And Russell's like, oh, I, I'm so happy to work with you guys. And so they all buy it hook, line, and sinker. 
And this is, of course, where Sandra is going to make it her mission to undercut Russell every chance she gets. And she has all sorts of great quotes here. I just have them circled all over this page. Let's see. The first one is, I hope I get my revenge because it's going to be good. Uh, you know how some people forgive and forget? Well, I don't forgive and I don't forget. And then there's the one about the, the I know that girl Amanda knows that had a worm in her butt. I think that was a Sandra quote too. <laughs> <laughs> no, but she goes right to Russ, to Rupert. And she's like, Russell's the kingpin. Russell's lying to all of you. Don't trust a word that little bitch says. So Sandra sells him out. And this will be the whole rest of this episode. Should they believe Sandra? Or as JT says, should they believe the truth? <laughs> what what I do love about this, which I think is some one thing that's hard to convey in Survivor, especially as the game evolves and evolves, and you hear a lot about it after the fact, where they talk about how like every move you do on Survivor is really being watched by other people. And I think like this episode does a good job of kind of showing like that Sandra was able to have this quick conversation and she's not able to check in later. And it's she narrates it, narrates it pretty well to say like, you know, if they see me talking to you, they're going to know something's up, whatever. So I really like how the show acknowledges that like, you know, uh, the context for all of this strategizing and idol play and who has this, whatever, it also comes with there is some social dynamics being played here is that you're constantly watching what are the other people doing. And so that um, I, I like that the that in addition to this amazing story that's being told over these two episodes, we also get kind of an insight of what it's like to hit the merge beach and everyone to be going everywhere and that you really can't just, you know, you can't just go talk to whoever you want because that's going to have an impact on your game. On that note, so... Russell has finally met the heroes, and we talked about how Russell has done a, a pretty good job of really playing the sad sack role up to the heroes. But I think where things are really going to start going wrong here is in this moment when Russell's talking to you know JT and Rupert and being like, "This is the first time I've been comfortable since J since day four. and specifically when Russell tells someone like Rupert, "I swear on my kids." that I'm on board with y'all. It's it's one of those things that Russell does a terrible job with in this season in particular, which is reading your audience. I think that he was still trying to play up this role, which is fine from afar, you know, when you're only exchanging a few words and not shaking hands. But I feel like since now he's starting to do this and become a bit more duplicitous, that's really going to shatter that image for the heroes. And that's when they really realize that they've been had, and overtly so. This is one of the many, many things that Russell is going to do unnecessarily over the course of the rest of the season is tell someone who literally has a charity called Rupert's Kids and faultily swear on his own kids that he's going to stick with them. Yeah, and this is the comparison that gets brought up a lot to Boston Rob. Boston Rob made the same problem or made the mistake, same mistake in All-Stars. Don't start doing unnecessary lies that could come back and haunt you later. So Rupert, or Russell's going to start making, that pro making those mistakes, but... There is a variable here I think a lot of people forget why the heroes don't like the villains. And it cracked me up when I saw it the other day when I was rewatching this episode because I'd forgotten about it. Is that, yeah, the villains are all a-holes. And yeah, they lie and they cheat and they steal and they make fun of our letter. But God damn it, Parvati and Danielle also eat our bananas. Oh, no. The there's a scene where yeah, there's a scene where Parvati and Danielle are double eating right before breakfast. They have bananas and then they have breakfast. And Rupert walks by them and gets death eyes. Oh my God, they ate our bananas. So this will probably have repercussions down the road why they don't like the villains because in the immortal words of Rupert, they're a greedy ass, eating ass, pain in the ass tribe. Oh God, Rupert, please don't put that image in our heads. 
<laughs> yeah, so, so I'm just saying that, yes, the heroes dislike the villains for many reasons, but don't overlook the fact that they do not have good banana etiquette. These damn villains eating so much butthole without even asking us. They're tossing each other's salads. Oh, God, this took a turn. He said he Mike, said Mike banana, banana ass eating ass. <laughs> and here's the thing. It took a turn, but I mean, that was so sharp of a turn. It was a good turn. It was a it was a right to right angle right there. <laughs> so anyway, yes, yeah, do not overlook the fact that the villains, especially Parvati and Danielle, eat their bananas and Russell Rupert will probably hate them for life for the rest of the game. But again, to, to make another right turn back to Rupert uh, for all of this. Right song. turn back to where fudge is made. Yeah. Oh, no. Sounds like a woman's alliance to me. Miss That guy is now saying, well, I don't think we should be trusting Russell completely. I think Russell might be lying here. And now everyone's like, no, Rupert, listen, you got your head in the cloud. Sandra's got you tricked. Russell's the guy to go with here. Here it is. The clairvoyant Rupert moment. <laughs> Turns out Russell's a woman. <laughs> well, they, you know what they say? A broken toe is right twice a day. Yes. Speaking of right angles, Rupert's toe. <laughs> anyway, now, Paul, I would love you to talk us through this one. Let's talk about Amanda trying to outwit Parvati. Yeah, she really um, brings her A-game, huh? Montana represent. I don't think you fully described that scene. Describe how, how I, terrible you know, Amanda I, I'll is. I'll just this say scene. this. I think when, Mo when Amanda won Miss Montana, I don't think her talent was um, telling lies. <laughs> okay, let somebody sum up the scene. This is the one where... Amanda goes to Parvati and tries to get her to play her idol and or think she's the target. I kind of forget. It's so hapless that I almost forgot to write down notes for this one. Because well, there's, there's two conversations, yeah. right? There's this one and the one later on, so they kind of like blur together. But Oh, there's two. The more, I think the more egregious one is the you should definitely play your idol uh, conversation. But this Let's is the first one. Play that for you tonight. Yeah, where they, where they connect and Amanda's like, uh, oh, you know, I'm working really hard to get rid of Sandra for you. And Parvati is already getting a sense of, like, I don't think Amanda's completely on my side. But Parvati does tell her, uh, just to test her trust, I guess, that to, it tells Amanda that she has an idol. So, And they also do their little secret handshake, which I'm assuming Colby was uh, very unhappy about. Paul, please tell me you remember Amanda's little catchphrase after Parvati says she has an idol. Um... Uh, th no, that she's loving it, yeah, loving it. it, love it, <laughs> loving it, love it, loving it. <laughs> Why does she say that? I don't know. It's so bad. I think I remember. I think at one point, like I think the first time I ever rewatched uh, Heroes versus Villains, they sent Mario like a message on Facebook or something. I just was like, okay, fine, you win. Amanda sucks. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, love it, loving it. I'm right. <laughs> I'm just like, oh. You, oh, you know what it is? Sandra was really pushing for that Outback sponsorship. Do you think Amanda really wanted McDonald's out on the island? <laughs> but she messed it up and couldn't even get I'm loving it. Yeah. McDonald's. Oh, there's bread there. <laughs> McDonald's. Love it. Loving it. Bada boo boo boo. Oh, it's so bad for such – She, yeah, I mean she, she had somewhat of a, of a legacy going into the season of these last couple episodes. It just – she goes out like a wet fart. It's so bad. It's no. so bad. Have you ever got an autograph from Amanda? Have you ever written to her or anything? I haven't. If you can, please write to her and get her to sign that. Love it, loving it. On a, on a polar bear, please. <laughs> or a horse. Or a 
I'm sorry. I'm sorry to talk about it anymore. I know. I'm sorry when our idols fall. It's got to be hard for you, Paul. I apologize. But again, I lost coach. You can lose Amanda. That's cool. All right. So immunity challenge after the Amanda is fascinating scene. We go, this is one where they have to go up on a pole and hang up for as long as they can and blah, 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 whatever. And uh, Danielle wins. So Danielle wins the first individual immunity after the merge. Yeah, though I think, you know, Parvati, uh, there's going to be a big storyline near the end of the season about how much of a challenge beast Parvati is. And she's not disputing it here where she throws it to Danielle, but that's like a minute after she is hanging off the pole one-handed, just sort of like shaking her hands off and, uh, you know, I guess unintentionally taunting everyone else by being like, look at how good at this I am. But basically Danielle's able to uh, convince Parvati to give her immunity and Danielle gets a little bit of smooching as well with that wooden pole. And not only is Parvati taunting them by holding by one hand, she's reading JT's letter out loud to everybody. <laughs> Please destroy this letter. This is the perfect time for this move. Danielle is a contestant on Heroes vs. Villains. You know what sucks? I got to say this. Danielle is instrumental to this season, and I feel bad because A, she shouldn't have been there in the first place, and B, no one remembers she was even on it. But if you watch the season, she's super important to the season, and she easily could have won, I think, at some point. And I, and I feel like the emotional turn, like if, if, you're, if you're buying the whole, you know, Russell really isn't that great. Because, you know, I think a lot of people can excuse a lot of the things. Like, you know, uh, one of the things that point that, that you know, I, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but like Russell is going to say some things to some of these people in the game where you're just sitting there going like that is super unnecessary, you know, and some of it is sort of what Mike was, was talking about just a a little bit ago though, the, I swear on my kids, like things you don't necessarily have to say, but he's openly taunting people in a lot of uh, other senses in this game. And it's like, that's not a thing that you should do, but a lot of people can just excuse that and go, ah, well, you know, that's just, that's just Russell being Russell, but you just got to respect the moves and stuff like that. But like Danielle getting ripped out at that tribal council yeah. that she's mm-hmm. going to go, go, go from is like, that's the emotional center. I think of this whole show. And mm-hmm. so, and, and that's Danielle, like she's like you said, she's so pivotal to the season and yet she's just not visible. Yeah. It's that sucks. And we'll, we'll talk about more when we get there, but yeah, if you imagine if you had a big fan favorite in that position and like, I mean, she's not even like a huge fan favorite, but someone like Courtney. Imagine if Courtney had been reamed out like that right then at the end of the game. That would have been pretty you know, demoralizing to the audience. But yeah, it's, it's well, well, again, we'll we'll give Danielle her due later because I do think she gets under loved a little bit in this. Oh, season. absolutely. Absolutely. Not only is she pivotal, but like I think Danielle, like I don't want to say underrated, but like Danielle's fabulous. Like it, 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 there's nothing nothing you can really say super bad about it. I mean, she she does what she needs to do. It's just, well. We'll get there. I mean, to be fair, we, we, <laughs> yeah. we have we have a, we have next episode as like a little uh, little highlight reel for Danielle before her big moment in sure. the episode yeah. after that. And we'll get there. And again, imagine if that had been Sari that got nailed by Russell right then. All right. Yeah. Nothing bad ever happens to Sari and Survivor. <laughs> yes. Nothing. Imagine... Nothing terrible happens to Sari. Imagine Sari going home without even getting voted for. Hate it. Hating it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so this is where Parvati, like, steps down at the end of the immunity challenge, and now the heroes are spooked. They're like, you know, Parvati wouldn't step down unless she has an idol. So now they're spooked. And so now the heroes are trying to decide who they want to vote for tonight. Is it going to be, it was going to be Parvati. Maybe it's going to be Sandra or Jerry and, or to get around the idols. And this is where we're going to get a lot of complicated idol play here. And I will, I will do a quick little summary so we can talk about the actual moment at the end where 
Sandra is still going to the heroes and telling them to vote, you know, vote out Russell, but nobody wants to do it. They're, they're spooked. They don't want to vote for Russell. They want to vote for one of the girls. So Sandra has to go back to the villains again. She's like, I don't want my big mouth to get me into trouble. And now Russell has an idol and he gives it to Parvati. He's got the idol that JT gave him. He gives it to Parvati. Parvati's got the idol she snuck off and got without Russell. So she has two idols now. And so this is the the moment where Parvati's like, I never realized why everybody said I was such a threat. I kind of realize that now all of a sudden I have two idols going into the five versus five vote tonight. This is a lot of power. So it's going to be a big moment here. And now, of course, we will get to Amanda and Parvati scene number two, Paul, where Amanda's going to one-up herself and have an even worse scene trying to convince Parvati to play an idol. Oh, my God. Yeah, not not loving this. Don't love this. <laughs> I mean, she like first she, she takes a page out of Macaulay Culkin and puts her hands on her face. And then she literally is like, I don't know what to do, Parvati. I'm so confused. My head hurts. Like It feels like Tommy Wiseau, if he was a Survivor fan, would immediately cast her in that moment, you know, a few years back for the room. <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't. I'm so confused. It's so weird. <laughs> oh, hi, Mark. <laughs> so, Paul, any comments on this one? Again, just like again with this, less is more. You know what? Just be like, it's between you and it's between you and Sandra, and I don't know the way it's gonna go. So, I'm I'm sorry we can't work together, but I don't know the way my. Vo- I feel like that would even spook poverty more than putting on the whole charade of I don't know, but just def I. Just definitely play it for yourself. Just yeah. definitely do it. I don't know anything except you should play your idol for yourself. I mean, honestly, just telling you, I can't tell you who I'm voting for because we're not in the same team. Like, I'm sorry. Like, even not saying anything would have been better. <laughs> yeah. So Parvati quickly deduces, huh, Amanda's telling me I should play this idol for myself. Perhaps I should not play this idol for myself. So Amanda kind of screws the pooch here. So, you know, if if one – a lot of people blame, you know, JT for screwing up the heroes or Candace or Colby or Rupert. It's a really much a very team effort of all the heroes that screwed <laughs> this game up really. It's very – they work hand in hand because Amanda very much spooks Parvati here. And Parvati's double idol play will directly come because of this. Yeah, there's nothing much else to say. It's just <laughs> – you know, it, but but this is the thing, you know, for as much as, you know, Mario has taken all this flack for, you know, trying to not, you know, put Parvati on some sort of pedestal for like greatest player ever. And there are people who are like Parvati's greatest player ever. I mean, the truth, again, is lies somewhere in between and whatnot. But, you know, you can say that this isn't the hardest read for Parvati to make, but she makes it like she looks mm-hmm. at this and goes up. Oh, well, I know what I'm going to do now. And it's like. She has two idols to hand out, and the heroes have telegraphed at least partially some of their moves. And it's like, you know, now you can understand why people of this caliber are in this heroes versus villains, and this is this is what's happening, you know? Yeah, okay, so let's sum this up for people. So the heroes are going to vote for somebody on the villains. Parvati has two idols. She can protect two of the five villains. She knows they're not going to vote for Sandra because Sandra's working with the heroes. She's kind of buddy-buddy with Rupert. So it's a pretty good bet they're, they she, they don't think they're going to vote for Sandra. But now it's all – they're trying to outwit each other. So it's a, it gets very complicated. And somehow Parvati reads the room correctly. She plays two idols of Tribal Council. She does give one to Sandra, and she does give one to Jerry, thus protecting – the three who were actually uh, controlling the game, Russell, Danielle, and Parvati, all of them are are, uh, are vulnerable. But the heroes have stacked all their votes on who? Uh, Sandra? Is it Sandra or Jerry? They Jerry. split, right? 
No, they no, they okay. all they all it's 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 five five. It's five JT, five Jerry. But what happens is to sort of I guess combat what you were saying. So Danielle has immunity. So there's only four villains who are up for the heroes' votes. Yeah. Russell, I feel like, is the person who is guaranteed to be safe. Because remember mm-hmm. that the big narrative that the letter provided that Russell has has uh you know committed to is that Russell's with them now. He's going to vote out Jerry. He's going to vote for whoever they say. So they feel like he's a loyal vote. They don't need to throw votes there. And so I think the big decision is Parvati is going to play one for Jerry. I think the big decision for her was, A, does she play the idol on herself? B, does she play the idol on Sandra? C, does she not play the idol whatsoever? Mm -hmm. I, I wonder, because obviously this is going to be a big flashy play. This is going to be one of the biggest survivor moments ever is Parvati playing these two idols using essentially JT's idol to send him home. But I wonder what this season looks like, at least the rest of it, if Parvati decides to hang on to that idol. Yes. If she doesn't show Russell, hey, I duped you and I found this idol without you. Also, if she has an idol in her own pocket to keep around for later on when she's targeted a good number of times, it just, it would look very interesting where, yes, this was a big 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 flashy moment that's still talked about i think it was even like elected to the survivor hall of fame when they did a tribal councils round but you have to wonder was this the optimal optimal thing for her to do yeah i'm glad you pointed that out because i kind of forgot that danielle was immune here so there's only four people that can vote for and russell they think is in with him so there's only three people they could have voted for really so it's she's just playing the odds but yeah i do agree what happens if she doesn't play that second idol but again, she does play the idol. It's a big move. Got to give her credit. This is the one, all the people that argue Parvati should have won Heroes versus Villains. This is the moment they point to, even though she doesn't have a whole lot of other moments. This is her one big moment. But it is a big moment. And JT goes home, gets idled out by his own idol that he gave to Russell. And it does a couple things here. The villains are going to win the game. They're up 5-4 now. And it also sows a little discontent with Russell because, like you said, Russell did not know Parvati had that idol, that second idol. He knew who gave her one. He didn't know she had the other one. And this will stick in his craw pretty much the rest of the game that she's doing things without him and keeping secrets. And he will never fully trust her again. And so I would argue this wins the game for the villains, but this probably loses the game for Parvati. Here's my question, though. And I think it's it's piggybacking on what Mike uh, talked about earlier. If Parvati keeps her idol secret and only plays one, only plays the idol for Jerry mm-hmm. and hides it, you know, do, do you think she has a chance to win this game? It depends how much the heroes hate her. Because my personal, this again, you guys may have different opinions of this. The reason Sandra wins at the end isn't so much that Sandra is the best player. It's that Sandra presents herself as I was giving you guys the heroes, the victory. You guys turn me down. If you vote for me, you win the game. I'm really handing you. I was a hero all along. And it's not so much that the heroes vote for Sandra or Parvati at the end. They're voting for themselves. They're basically the jury. They're like, all right, the heroes need to win this game. Sandra was trying to be a hero. We win. So I, I don't know if it makes a difference. I think the heroes have already decided they don't like Parvati, but the Russell and Parvati stuff would not have collapsed nearly as hard if she hadn't done that. I think the question is, you know, I guess what garners more respect playing two idols at once and making a big, bombastic, never-before-seen moment or, you know, playing two idols in two separate rounds, but I guess proves more consistency. Because I do feel like, by the end, I do see your point, Mario, that I think Sandra really presents this front of, 
hey, I was trying to work with you, and Poverty was presenting at this front of, I had to work against you. And I think at the end of the day, the heroes took the former attitude. But I did see some begrudging respect from the heroes towards Parvati. They really acknowledged specifically from the physical perspective what she mm-hmm. was able to do uh, in the end game. there. I think one of the biggest sliding doors is that I think if Parvati keeps this idol to herself, I don't know if Russell comes up with the big plan to take out Danielle. And if if Parvati has Danielle sitting with the, her you know, in the end game, maybe she's able to make more moves. If she sits next to Danielle in the end, does that help or does that hurt her? I'm not entirely yeah. sure, but I think that's probably the biggest consequence if she hangs on to her idol is, like you said, Russell's not going to get this seed of paranoia planted in his head just yet, so it's not going to grow over the course of a week that leads him to take a direct shot at her closest ally. Because it's it, it's an interesting point, you know, like you said, Mike, in the sense that playing two idols at once is flashy, and it's flashy to the people out there because it's a super flashy move. But, you know, people are going to talk about it. You know, people still talk about it, right? And people talk about Parvati being one of the greatest of all time. And one of the things on a resume is this double idol play. Whereas, you know, people aren't going to talk about, well, she played two idols in Heroes versus Villains at two separate times in strategic kind of sections. Like, I don't think people are making that argument as as bombastically as double idol play, which is, you know, a, a thing that can happen. So the the question is, if you think she had, if if you think that the sliding doors occur to where she doesn't play these two idols at once and she very likely wins the game through other things, then yeah, she probably shouldn't have done it. And yeah, this cost her the game. But if you're going to make the argument of she probably wasn't going to win this game anyway, the argument should probably be made that you might as well do the double idol play because again, this is style points. This is no longer what's happening in the game itself. It's about your legacy and your style in this game, which unfortunately is a thing now yeah i was gonna say the 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 biggest variable is does sandra still get to the end in that scenario we don't we don't know that and i mean speaking of those style points i mean i think it's an insanely fun moment to watch uh because i mean first you have the the thing before it would be downright depressing to watch green bananas turn yellow without my debaucherous little villains because we didn't talk about it but Banana Etiquette was at the forefront of the tribal conversation to start off, with Rupert sort of grousing about what Danielle and Parvati were doing. So I love the fact that she sort of took a jab at them by mentioning that. And she gives the first one to Sandra, and the heroes are just smiling. And then she gives one to Jerry, and their faces just drop. And I think that's when JT just goes, damn it. And you, they knew that, they, that they've got God. And I, I think that, you know... It is a badass moment yeah. for Parvati. And I think she really shows, like you said in that confessional before, Mario, she's like, yep, I'm every bit the threat you thought I was. But it's also very fun as well to watch. Even though Russell got a win here in that his alliance is now in the majority, he is staring daggers at Parvati, much more so than the other four the four heroes that are around them. But I think, I think also that that can't be understated as to the badassness of this move. Because I think, like you said... Like you said, Mike, we at home could follow the path of what's going on, right? Like, clearly, they're not going to vote for Russell. You can't vote for Danielle because she's immune. So she has two idols and three possible people that could be played. But I think that if she plays one on Jerry and then plays one on herself, that's not as badass move. But it's the whole fact of, like, I have two idols and I'm giving them to two people other than me because I don't think I'm going to be voted for. Like, everything about that is amazing. And there's also something to be said about this idea of when you play an idol on somebody else, you're like simultaneously strengthening your own image while weakening theirs. 
of like, yeah, I protected them. There's a lot of talk about that when uh, Jeremy Collins saved Stephen Fishback in Survivor Cambodia. Stephen said that, like, he felt like he could never win the game after that because Jeremy essentially said, like, ah, you're only in the game because of me and playing this idol. And to that point, Parvati is basically saying, like, yep, Jerry could have very easily gone out. Though, actually, it would have been very, uh, speaking of other Australian Outback callbacks, if they had a tie at the merge vote with 10 people, 5 and 5, would have been very similar echoes for Jerry and Colby. So with that, we lose JT. Anybody have anything more to say? I feel we eulogized his letter pretty well. Just anything else to say on this? Was it smart, stupid, anything else that we neglected to mention earlier? I think we just keep a copy of the letter, and then about every time we get to another tribal council, we just take it out and read it and laugh about it some more. <laughs> yeah, what if it was like, Jeff's like, if anybody has a hand immunity album, Parvati's like, I don't have one, but here's JT's letter. Can I give it to you? <laughs> I have a letter. It's really funny. <laughs> Jeff, I, Jeff I, fe- I feel that this is a turning point in the game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what if, what, if, what if that was the thing? What if it wasn't that Parvati read the letter? What if it's that she kept incorporating quotes from the letter into the rest of the season? I, I tried to explain that, and I probably didn't because I rambled too much. But yeah, I think that that's probably most likely what's happening and what Sandra remembers. Not in the sense that Parvati drags the letter physically out and physically quotes the letter, but she might have probably been quoting the letter in passing <laughs> for some of those things because it's kind of ridiculous. This is a. Uh, and I'll be movie- honest with you. I might have done the same thing. <laughs> I mean, this, come on. This is like the, the Tarantino movie, The Hateful Eight, where the guy has the Lincoln letter. He's traveling around the country, Samuel Jackson, with this letter from Abraham Lincoln. And so nobody will mess with him because it's currency, the Lincoln letter. And so if Parvati has the JT letter, nobody will mess with her. Is that, does that count as historical novels? It does. That's my, uh, yeah, that's my introductory by uh, contribution to historical novels on this one, the Lincoln letter. I All right, so... Was- I think the only thing you can eulogize for the fact is that, you know, we talk about people's legacy and sort of like, why would someone go on Survivor again? Right. You know, you know, why would Sandra go on Survivor again? Because she's already a winner. Why would you do it? And and with JT, you know, he pitched almost a perfect game in token sheens. And so you're sitting there going like, why would you do it again? But, you know, maybe because you want to be challenged in a way and, you know, you want to fight through adversity and stuff like that. But, you know, a lot of times you can argue that people who win, like Tom Westman, you know, he he won Survivor Palau. He comes back out for Heroes vs. Villains. You don't think less really of Tom Westman after this, right? Like, yeah, he doesn't win and he goes out kind of early, but you're like, yeah, Tom, he was great. And Survivor, you know, and, and all that sort of stuff. But JT, even though we can understand what he did and what he was doing and all that sort of stuff, to become perhaps one of the dominant winners of a season ever – to getting your entire survivor reputation almost destroyed by something that you do in, in a, in a subsequent season is almost unheard of <laughs> from the, the thrill of victory to the agony of defeat. As literally he is that ski jumper. That's literally going or the, the, the skier that's, that's tumbling off those cliffs. Like that's literally what happens to him. It is the agony of defeat. No, the and agony w- of Dato. <laughs> that's oh you can actually see that letter the ski lift the ski jumper as he's crashing you see him writing the letter very quickly the, the incursive the girly it's, handwriting it's not a ski jumper is it it's 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 there there he's doing like slalom or something yeah, right something like that but i think yeah. that this i'm gonna give jt so much kudos in that he takes it so well we talked yeah. about this in micronesia about how eric giving up immunity just crushed him emotionally and behaviorally And JT, almost immediately after he's voted out, is like, damn, that was stupid. But maybe it's to what we were talking about before. If he felt like he was going to go in this place anyway, it's more of this idea of like, well, 
I threw everything at the wall and nothing's. I tried. Yeah, exactly. And and that's why I think he's in just such good spirits. And it's one of those things where it's it's not so one of these big survivor moves which leaves someone like emotionally crushed for getting humiliated on television. Though to also Mario's point, he's playing a bit with house money at this point. So maybe he's just like, yeah, I had fun. I made this big move. It didn't work out. I'm fine forming a rock band now. And I I think that's the (laughs) other thing in in the sense that, you know, we talk about uh, winning a million dollars and it's like, you know, you know, this this is we're getting on in years as it goes. And yes, if you win a million dollars today, like you're not necessarily set for life always with everything like a million dollars doesn't go as far as, you know, some other sum of money. But we can all agree that a million dollars is nothing to laugh at. It is life changing money. Right. And JT has won a million dollars. He has one survivor. And it's not I, I wouldn't argue, Mario, that he doesn't care. But at the same time, it's like he's not staring down the barrel of, oh my gosh, I have the, I have the ability to win life-changing money or be a winner of Survivor, which is going to up my stock or blah, blah, blah. Like he has that, he has done that. And so it's kind of like, you know, it's, it's not a matter of like, oh, I don't care, but it's like, if I, if I fall short, I have already done all right. Yeah. It's like, oh, well, guess I have to go home with my money and my fame and my good looks and have sex with hot models. Oh, damn. Yeah. (laughs) Basically. So anyway, good on you, JT. We I don't think it was the stupidest move ever. I know people no. love to trash it. But again, there was some logic behind it, and I appreciate the going big or going homeness of it. Speaking of going home, it's time for Amanda's episode, Paul. Yay! Love it. <laughs> Loving it. I'm just going to go on. I, I feel like we should all just go on mute. And uh, Paul, you just take the next uh, 15 minutes. Oh. Tell the tragic fall of Amanda. Yeah, would you ever think that one of your favorite players? You think if I had told you before Heroes versus Villains, Amanda Kimmel's going to get voted out because she gives a horrible lying performance and then loses a cat fight in a wrestling match in a museum slash old historical home. I don't think you would have believed me whatsoever. With the great, with the great Colby Donaldson, just uh, watching half amused from the bed, <laughs> watching it, watching it. <laughs> <laughs> oh man this is just kind of pathetic but i mean it actually like it was kind of for a long time i could not really rewatch this episode very I, I just hated rewatching it but i mean for for an ending in amanda's boot i thought it, it was a very fun episode from start to finish yeah this is a good episode this is a okay well we'll skim through this one so uh jt had been voted out the villains are now up five to four and the heroes are screwed and the heroes are like hey we should go talk to sandra again maybe we'll listen to her this time but this is where uh, Russell, first off, he's pissed. He's pissed at Parvati that she has hidden that idol. And she goes to Sandra, of all people. She's like, did you know Parvati had an idol? And Sandra, I love, uh, immediately throws Parvati under the bus. She's like, no, I didn't know she had two of them neither. Which is <laughs> a wonderful quote. And then Russell's just really annoyed. He goes to Parvati. And he's like, why didn't you tell me? You lied to me. And again, to back to my point that Sandra is better at dealing with Russell than Parvati is. Parvati just giggles. She's like, hee, I didn't have to tell you. He, 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 he. And like, that is not how you deal with Russell at all. And she will keep doing this. She's like, I didn't need to tell you. It was funny. Ha ha. And like, this is where you can see she doesn't really take Russell seriously as a threat. She's getting a little cocky. And again, it will be to both of their detriments down the road. Yeah. I mean, she essentially, her and Danielle both essentially say like, calm down. Which is not a great way. It feels like you're invalidating somebody's feelings. And granted, this these are Russell's feelings that you're talking about, but these are one of your allies' feelings. You know, it's comparable to like the way the Road Two Four sometimes treated like your Pascal and your Nalias. Now, what Parvati says about Russell in confessional is 100% correct. 
that he mm-hmm. wants to be the godfather of the game, that he feels like he's not in control. But I think the manner in which they sort of do damage control with him, it's weird that they feel like they need to do damage control on an ally in, again, helping protect their alliance. What I had forgotten so much about Russell Hands that this endgame has really made me remember is for all the talk about Russell Hands being one of the biggest strategists the game has ever seen, Russell Hance is an extremely emotional player to the point where we're going to get into several episodes where he's like, all right, Danielle's going home, or yep, Parvati's going right here, right now. And that's one thing that really gets him in trouble is that he, he is so heated during some of these encounters that he decides to make promises right there, right then, like, yep, I'm resolute in my promise. Sandra's going home right now. And then two minutes later, he changes his mind. And I think I forgot just how hot-headed Russell can be and how that sort of unfortunately ties into his ability to just do too much is because his mind is constantly racing at all times that it makes him make a million deals because in that moment he believes, okay, I have to make this deal right now and then immediately abandons that plan and moves on to something else. Yeah. He's got a couple of huge flaws in his game to coin a term that he himself will use later. There's a couple of flaws and one, of course, he's very emotional. He's kind of a baby and he's got this huge flaw that if you don't treat him like a god, he will immediately target you. Like he just he cannot handle if you do not acknowledge his greatness to his face. And that's what happens over and over. You'll see it here again. Although he does have a good move here, I will say this is a probably his last good move in the game is that he knows Sandra could flip now because it's 5-4. Sandra could easily hop over. So he's like, I need to go get a hero to counteract Sandra. I need some Sandra insurance. And of course, a lot of Sandra will take a hit for this. A lot of people say, well, all she tried to do was get Russell out of the game and she never could. So she sucks. But it wasn't necessarily her fault because Russell is grabbing Candace now. He's like, well, I'll just get Candace to flip with us and I'll make promises to her, which again, unnecessary promises because Candace, Candace is going to be pissed later, but it's Sandra insurance. So this is how he counteracts Sandra. So Sandra can't do anything because now Candace in her wishy-washy ways is flipping over to the villain. So that's, that's what happens here. Yeah. I mean, are we terribly shocked that the person who mutinied and betrayed an entire tribe in Survivor Cook Islands is the hero to make the flip here? Well, you know who the real villain here is? Brad Culpepper. <laughs> it was funny. Like, I was uh, rewatching the episode today, and my wife walked in for a second and was like, now wait, why is Candace a hero again? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We have all wondered that, Paul. It's the age-old question. Yes. <laughs> okay, so we'll skip through that because this becomes important later in the episode. But first, we go to the reward challenge, and this is the catfight challenge. Oh, I'm sorry. No, the historical Robert Lewis Stevenson Museum challenge where they play shuffleboard and the winning tribe of three gets to go to this historical museum where the famed author Robert Lewis Stevenson wrote Treasure Island and it will all devolve into a cat fight later. So it's, it's one of these turning point moments in Survivor where I'm not entirely sure this is Survivor anymore, but here we go. When you watch that scene of them in that room, you're like, what show is this again? Yeah, I know. Three people <laughs> lying in a so bed weird. watching a movie, and then it devolves into like a – you know what? Quite honestly, it feels like a porn. It feels like <laughs> a very weird porn movie of three bedraggled people watching some public domain film, Treasure Island, because they can't afford the rights to everybody to everyone else, and somebody's into this idea of dirty people fighting over a piece of paper, and so they decide to do it. I will say, just from this reward challenge quickly, because there's a lot of dragging. We talked about it last episode of Colby not being good in these immunity challenges. He'll be, he was the first one out in the poll challenge. Uh, but he ends up winning this challenge 
for his team. So again, if we're talking about sliding doors moment, if Colby decides to not momentarily pull a Colby and do great at shuffleboard, then Amanda and Danielle do not go to that Robert Louis Stevenson house, and we don't see one of the most ridiculous scenes from the first 20 seasons of Survivor happen. Yeah, what a metaphor, though, for the journey of Colby into <laughs> Superman in a fat suit that he dominates a shuffleboard game. <laughs> I was just going to say that. But yeah, it's funny that he wins the old person challenge. Yeah. <laughs> he also wins bingo. He dominates in bingo. Dominates in bingo and wearing black socks with his Bermuda shorts. Like, <laughs> what else is he, uh, you know, doing? <laughs> the other players have to, like, program his VCR and set the clock for him. Also, like... Okay, you when you think about it, this is another one of those on paper things. Like when you think about it, it's really cool sounding. Like oh, you're gonna go to this, you know, Robert Louis Stevenson house and watch Treasure Island. Robert Louis Stevenson wrote Treasure Island, but like how underwhelming is that? <laughs> yeah, you're in his house watching a movie they got from Blockbuster. Yeah, you're like this is this is terrible. <laughs> well, okay, I I have to say this is one of those scenes I did not include it on the funny 115, and it's one that people gripe about all the time because they always thought I should have written it up. But I always point to this scene as the moment I really stopped taking Survivor seriously anymore. Where in the you know in the old season they would have they would show respect for their host where their locations where they're going. They go to some village and have a feast. Go to some museum and they'd like oh we're going to deliver aid supplies to the hospital. Let's meet all the children. This one we have come to the point where the show is effectively Jerry Springer now, where they actually <laughs> go to a historical place, a museum, and they yeah, have. Say, a... Can I see that? Can I see that yeah, prop? I feel so <laughs> bad for this poor woman who's like, this is where the, one of the most revered authors lived and died, and Amanda's like, I gotta find an item clue among these man's belongings. I felt happy for that lady. She's probably like, I have never seen someone so excited about these artifacts before. She wants to touch them all. <laughs> She found the one fan that loves the stuff. <laughs> she likes it, or she loves it. She's loving it. <laughs> feeling it, feeling it. <laughs> holding it, holding it. The thing that we see Amanda pick up is like an iron, like a Monopoly yes. piece <laughs> iron of like, Amanda, listen, I know they get very, like, you know, they get very unique with the clues. Do you think it's really printed on this iron? <laughs> Am Amanda, honey, irons are solid. There's no place to open that. <laughs> it's not, yes, it's. A, but this is one of the scenes that really made me stop realizing Survivor is Survivor anymore when they have a cat fight in a historical location. <laughs> Again, they would not have done this in Palau. I'm sorry. Yeah, so I guess we should talk through what happens here. So. Uh, we I, actually, I think this is a very fun edited scene. So, you know, say what you want to about what it says about Survivor, but so the three of them are sitting in the bed, and we get the bongos of paranoia as Amanda frantically, her doe eyes dart around the room as she's trying to figure out where might this clue be. And we keep cutting back to Colby and Danielle just like mindlessly eating popcorn out of this bowl as they're watching this movie, and Danielle finds a clue in the popcorn bowl and she stows it under the bed, and so Amanda like, gets up at one point and sits next to the bed and then <laughs> finds the clue under the bed, grabs it, and then all hell breaks loose. Well, and this is a thing, too, where I didn't, I didn't dig up the original article, but this is one of the gripes that I think that Colby had at one point about how this actually went down, that the way it was... I, it seems like that Amanda did yank it out from, from Danielle, that, like, it showed her putting it on the floor, but then Danielle had it on her in some way. I don't know where it was, if she was sitting on it or something like that. So that was one thing that Colby was a little bit upset about was that, I mean, whatever, you can react to this how you want, but he was upset about it that it wasn't, from his perspective, it wasn't just lying on the floor free for the taking. It was 
totally ripped out of Danielle's hands. Yeah, to- but Colby's like way into it because more than anything else about the scene, I just remember them all like after the fight, they just look at Colby and Colby just goes, I'm just here to watch Treasure Island. Yeah, he goes, I didn't even <laughs> see what happened. I was watching Treasure Island, which means like that was Colby's half-hearted attempt at a sponsorship, I think. <laughs> no, I, and I mean, the thing is, is that I think that Colby's like painfully aware that there's a camera and he's just trying to, you know, play all this off and, and whatnot. But at the same time, I'm, it, it, I guess it's not, it's a, for Mario, I guess it was the moment of like, oh, this is the moment where I'm like, Survivor doesn't care about their locations anymore. But this is just one of those glaring things where like, they are all so painfully aware that they are on a TV show and they are playing for the cameras. Well, Colby especially, he seems embarrassed that he's involved in this scene. Like, I cannot believe I'm on this show. Yeah, he lets he lets out a sigh and like pauses the DVD player that they're playing Judge Rowling. I'm like, ah. Well, I think he compares himself in a confessional to like, a school teacher having to break up two kids fighting during recess. Cause it sort of comes off like it. Like you have Danielle, like calling Amanda a psychopath, you know, Amanda refuses to give up the clue, which I mean, I, I, to your point, Paul, I don't know why we didn't see Amanda, you know, taking the clue from Danielle, because if that's the case, Amanda is so much more in the wrong. Whereas here, maybe they're trying to make the argument of like, no, it was on the floor, you know, finders keepers. But, uh, you know, I, I also like the fact that for some reason we get like a broken glass sound effect put in there, which really made me scared for a second of poor Robert Lewis Stevenson's home that like they actually destroyed some of his property. <laughs> I forgot. Which would be that. which would be the second time that Colby has been involved in like some yeah. massive. <laughs> yeah, he gets fined for that too. <laughs> <laughs> hey Keith, I brought you back some of Robert Lewis Stevenson's bed. <laughs> This Tina, this is orange for Tennessee. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, yeah, this is I personally call this a jumping of the shark moment in Survivor. I know other people would disagree with me, but I I, I have a hard time taking the show seriously with this scene in it. But it is pretty ridiculous. It really is. And people love I to was... bash Colby because of it too. They all, oh, Colby didn't even inv- partake in the cat fight. He just watched TV. What an idiot. So it's like there's all sorts of things that get said. I was just Googling this to try to find. I didn't find the right article I wanted to, but this was an interview with Amanda. And the headline is, Amanda says catfight was vicious. <laughs> and then it says that it was a little more vicious than what they portrayed it to be, Kimmel said. She didn't wrestle me to the ground. We pulled each other's hair, and they didn't show that. They didn't show much of it. Wow. Pulling it. Pulling it. <laughs> pretty, pretty intense, because Danielle says later on, like, I wrestled Amanda to the ground and ripped it out of her hand, which we didn't see. We saw her sort of, like, grab right. Amanda's wrist and hold on to it. But from what it sounds like, it got a little more violent, though I guess not past, like, grade school. <laughs> I wouldn't personally fight Danielle. She seems like she'd be a little meaner than Amanda. And that's not I'm not begrudging the street fighting talents of, of Montana, Paul, but I suspect Danielle would be a little more of a, a street fighter. Yeah, well, and then uh, Amanda was venting a little bit about here that she was telling Colby, you have to help me find it. You have to help me find it no matter what. We have to leave this reward with the clue. He really wasn't looking for it the entire time. So once I passed the popcorn to Danielle, I was like, oh, my God, I'm such an idiot. I just gave the clue to Danielle. So, yeah, Colby really, uh, really helped her out on that one. Colby said he <laughs> fell asleep and then got woken up by the wrestling, apparently. <laughs> he, he won shuffleboard and then he fell asleep at six o'clock. That's the classic old man behavior. To a black and white film of Robert Louis Seams' Treasure Island. Like, yeah. Yes. He's like, I don't like these new films that the kids like. Treasure Island. It's all, it's all sex and violence. <laughs> all right. So 
Dan, so the, outmath, uh, the aftermath of this is Danielle has an idle clue that she has beaten Amanda for. And she goes back to camp and she gives the clue to the villains. And what happens is Russell goes out, immediately uses the clue to find the idol, does not tell Danielle he has the idol because we're not telling people about idols anymore, thanks to poverty. And then instead he, what, he goes to show it to Candace. He's like, look, I have an idol, come join the villains. And from here on out, I believe Candace is now a villain. But, I mean, I guess he gets lucky in that Candace doesn't want to use it as ammo against Russell because she's afraid that it's going to come back to her. But, like, why does he do this? Why why does he blatantly go to someone who's still on the other side and say, like, hey, I know that there's a chance Sandra can flip, so here I have an idol. Yeah, well, I mean, again, to def- I hate that I defend Russell, but I have to because he's terrified of Sandra flipping on them. So he needs this ally immediately to prevent Sandra. So I can see his logic. Yeah, and, I mean, Russell's pattern is to take is to take women and ally with them because he feels like he can manipulate them better, more or better or something along those lines, right? So Candace is there. Then why does he also tell Candace, I'm going to the final three with you? Well, that's overkill. <laughs> I mean, I guess it would make sense because he wants to make sure Candace knows that she's not going to be sixth, but like, yeah, yeah I agree. There's some logic in the first step, but step two is just completely over the top. He's good at the micro game, not the macro game. Let's put it that way. Right. Okay. I mean, but that that that's the whole thing. That's that's my argument in the sense that like you could admire some of the moves he makes because some of the moves he makes are very bold. And there are times and, you know, you can you can argue that maybe he shouldn't have put himself in this hole to begin with. And I understand that fact. But him digging out of holes is impressive. He does instinctively do some things that are correct. But as he is doing the things that are correct to get him out of that hole, he is literally just torpedoing his chances to actually win a jury vote right no, he's, yeah. he's yeah he's digging himself and he's making his way out of the hole but he's also tossing some dirt back into the hole yeah. uh, just <laughs> just a bit but he, I, he does have a i will say he's gonna have a lot of threatening moments i feel like the way he approaches sandra is maybe i want to call it a warranted threat but the way he essentially tells her like hey you might not want to flip we already have six votes uh is is i think good to sort of keep her from really it really stymies any attempt she makes to really jump over to the other side yeah and again that's the one thing i like to defend sandra she's trying her best but russell is really countering it's like a game of chess at this point and he keeps blocking her moves and yeah this is where he sits her down on the beach and he says you're not going to flip, are you? She's like, hell no, why would I flip? And he's like, you know, I got six votes already, so it would not be wise for you to flip. And this, she's like, no, hold up, you're doing math wrong. But it turns out Russell is doing math correct. Sandra is wrong there. I have to point that out. And then, But Sandra just cannot flip here. She's like, I can't do it. I don't have the votes. I can't go over. And this is where Rupert is now completely against Russell. Where you know Rupert and JT thought that Russell was like this poor, sympathetic figure. Now Rupert realizes Russell is threatening Sandra and blocking all the hero's attempts. And Rupert utters the immortal phrase, we need him out. The guy is a piece of garbage. This is in the episode where he's like, he might even be worse than Johnny Fairplay. He is. No, that's different. That's later. (laughs) That quote was perfect, though. I know. He is. (laughs) Rupert's such a freaking good confessionalist just because I, I love it. And this is also, again, we'll talk later, because this is going to be like Rupert's surprisingly adept gameplay to stave off six days of execution, but we'll get to that. 
Okay, so the immunity challenge in episode 11 is build a house of cards. A, uh, we've seen this on many other seasons. Um, you have to build the house of cards up to 10 feet. And uh, at the end of this one, we have a person winning their first immunity challenge in Survivor history, which is Jerry. Jerry wins her first immunity, and she gives a confessional where she's swimming in yay after winning immunity. <laughs> so good for her. Yay. I love that. I love, I mean, it is like kind of weird, I guess, if you think like, okay, three seasons, she finally won an immunity challenge. But I love how like Jeff is like so shocked by it. This is your first one. When you think about, okay, she was the third boot after the merge in Australia. So she competed in three individual challenges. She did not make the merge in all stars. And this is the second round after the merge. So literally this is her fifth individual immunity challenge. To be fair, she did win an individual challenge. She won that boomerang challenge. So maybe he, he oh, to be right. fair. And, and the, um, and the, with uh, Colby, the, the partnership. Oh yeah. They're speaking of coral. When they went and uh, had honeymoon without uh, without the sex. <laughs> Wait, the boomerang one. That's the the Amber Burkitch. Oh my God, this food is so good. Memorial challenge. I remember that one now. Correct. <laughs> okay, so Jerry wins immunity, and uh, this is where Sandra promises to us she's going to vote out Russell. She's going to get revenge on all the revenge for all the villains that have been voted out, and she names like Courtney, Boston, Rob, and even Coach. I'll throw him in there. I don't care about him, but for him too. But again, this will not happen because Candace is a turncoat. She has mutinied, and Sandra will be stymied yet again. Yeah, so it looks like Russell has set his targets like, because, you know, he, Candace is now on his side, and he says that Colby and Rupert look done, which I think we'll sort of talk about. I think Colby's sort of an endgame plan about how there was a lot of talk about how he just sort of doesn't talk, and it looks like he's sort of given up. And I guess it helps him here. They sort of end up pulling a Jenna Maraska for a bit. So. It's Amanda, who Russell puts, is like Boston Rob in a girl's body. Paul, would you care to comment on that? Absolutely not. <laughs> I feel like that's it's, Russell's it's... greatest fantasy, is it not? <laughs> so he's secretly in love with Amanda. Mm, I don't know about that. <laughs> okay. That's true. He hasn't uh, put yeah. her in the Survivor Hall of Fame yet, so we know he doesn't have a crush on her. Psychoanalyzing it. Psychoanalyzing it. <laughs> I was going to say, doubt it. Doubting it. <laughs> Yeah, so so the target is Amanda that Russell says we got to get rid of a villain. Colby and Rupert are worthless and Amanda she's like Boston Rob. She's super aggressive. It's not that's not the person I'd compare her to, but okay. And so this is <laughs> the whole rest of this episode is Russell versus Sandra where he's like you're not going to flip are you? She's like hell no and then she walks right to the hero. She's like I'm going to flip. And so <laughs> Russell keeps threatening her and and Sandra is super nervous cuz she's worried the villain, the heroes, and Candace are not going to vote with her. She's like, you're going to leave me out to dry. Don't F me here. And so it's just a will she or won't she. And there's a hilarious scene that I've always loved where, where Sandra's trying to talk to Candace and they're strategizing. And Russell walks up to see what they're doing. And Sandra's like, could you just go away, Russell? I never get any time alone to talk to these people. <laughs> so Russell's like, okay. So just Sandra standing up to it. But again, Candace is so scared. Candace is scared of idol play. She's scared of the villains. She's not going to vote out Russell tonight. She's not going to do it. So Sandra is screwed. So this will lead to the downfall of the Amanda Kimmel. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, this is very interesting as well. Like we see, you know, uh, Candace out Sandra's plan to Russell. Russell approaches Sandra and Sandra, like we mentioned countless times before, is able to subjugate herself to the so-called king of like, no, 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 I didn't do that. I never would. I'm trying to figure out why, because I think the heroes end up voting for poverty in this one, and I was trying to figure out why. I guess they assume that Danielle had the idol, 
and that she would play it on herself or she would play it on Russell because they thought they'd be mad at him. So Parvati sort of ended up, I guess what they were trying to do with Jerry last time of like vote for the person who would least likely have an idol played on them. I think maybe Parvati wrote them a letter and said, vote for me tonight. <laughs> I don't know. No, I don't. I don't know why they voted for it. They just did. And it was wrong. And and Russell plays an idol and like all these idol plays and scheming is going on. And in, in the end, it's just a plain old six, three vote against Amanda and everything is wasted. I totally forgot that Russell not only had, but played an idol here. I guess I had thought that like, oh, Parvati had one, Sandra had one, we had Tom and Russell have one previously, but yeah, this is totally like uh, the the first one that Russell ever played in Samoa, where like he is so paranoid that he feels like somebody flipped and he wants to, to keep them all honest. Because also, Russell does uh, something pretty damn stupid here, where he describes the personalities of all the villains, where he's like, you know, me and Danielle are aggressive, Jerry's the calm one, Parvati's charming. And Sandra says, you forgot somebody, and replies, oh, Sandra's just there with us. <laughs> yeah, it's, again, many, Russell has many flaws in his gameplay. This is one. Sandra is not one of us, and she will never be. Uh, anyway, deal with that, Sandra. Yeah, so he disses her. He's done this twice now, where he's named his friends and left people out. But at the end of the day, uh, Russell plays an idol poorly. He wastes one. He plays one here he doesn't need to play. And this is, I think I mentioned it before, kind of the emperor has no clothes moment where Russell will never be shown as a good player the rest of the season. They're just basically going to mock him in the edit and the other players, and it's going to go very downhill very fat, very quickly for Russell here. But yeah, he plays his idol. They don't need it. And all the villains plus Candace uh, team up to vote out Amanda Kimmel. For the first time in Survivor history, she gets her torch smuffed. Sad day. Yeah, hating it. it. <laughs> hating it. It's pretty crazy that, like, we are done talking about Amanda Kimmel's Survivor career. A lot of these players from this season will end up coming back to play in future seasons, but Amanda was somebody who, outside of that Blue Crush 2 cameo, was pretty much like, no, I think I'm done with anything entertainment-wise, Survivor included. Wait, did you say that was sad that we're not talking about her anymore? Hey. Sorry, Paul. It's just weird. Well, again, considering we talked, I mean, she was the integral part of our China Micronesia back-to-back coverage, and now she's gone. Now there's no more Amanda talk. Yeah, she played three times in six seasons. She was very much associated with Survivor for a very specific period of time, and then, like you said, she just disappears. She's like Kaiser Soze. She's gone. Should we eulogize her, Paul, or are you going to— Well, okay, the hard thing about her this—like— I, it's a weird, like, I feel like the going into the season, they kind of, like, in the first couple episodes, there was so much action happening at the Heroes, and it was like, they, sh- you know, they had clips of her saying things like, me and Sari, we're out for blood now, like, this is, it's on, and then it just kind of just didn't go anywhere, and so it's just kind of a sad tale for Amanda this season, so... um yeah, I'll choose to remember uh, Amanda from 15 and 16 more than I will from uh, season 20. I will admire her because, I mean, we forget that in those first two episodes, she was the target of the minority. And it was because, like, you know, we talk a lot about Parvati's reputation coming into this season, but Amanda had a pretty big one, too. She was the only person up to that point who had made the final Tribal Council both times. She was the first player to hit triple-digit days out there on the island. And so... In episode two, you have Colby and Tom and Stephanie going after her because of her connections and because she's a big player. So I do commend her on, you know, 
you know, like Parvati, sort of rebuffing that reputation, being able to find herself in a good alliance. And yeah, it was weird to see her torch get snuffed, just because that's not what we usually remember from Amanda Kimmel. Uh, but I think, you know, maybe going out in a wrestling match is the least Amanda Kimmel we think <laughs> when we think of Amanda Kimmel. But I guess it shows she's a more colorful character than we thought. <laughs> I, I will say this. I think that, you know, if anyone sits there and says Amanda's not a very good survivor player, I think that's categorically wrong. And I think yeah. that I think that out of a lot of people, because there are people even like Sandra for that, for 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 instance. And again, I know that, you know, I'm saying something about watch what I say, blah, blah, blah. But as we've seen in in, in subsequent seasons that Sandra's been on, like because of her reputation and who she is, like people might get Sandra out early. So, like, if, if you're saying Sandra is going on a season of Survivor in my opinion, I'm like, she's either going to be out fairly quickly or she's going to go very far. And it's probably not going to be much variance there. Whereas, you know, and there are a lot of people that come back in Survivor or would you're saying this person's going to come back and play Survivor. I would say, I don't know how well they're going to do. Whereas if you said to me, Amanda Kimmel is going to come out and play the next season of Survivor, I would say she's going to do pretty well. Yeah, I agree with that. I have I've come around on Amanda over the years. I didn't like her at the time just because I couldn't – I didn't understand why they kept bringing her back. Although, to Jay's point, like you said, she is a categorically good player. You can't deny that. I just didn't find her especially interesting. But, again, she won me over, and I talked about this in Micronesia. I kind of, she kind of won me over. I felt bad for her after that season because I do think she probably – probably should have won and I felt bad that she didn't she blew it so bad and then again she comes off looking so badly here I I I feel bad even making fun of her a little bit for like the uh my head hurts I want to scratch my head and confuse that scene that seems terrible so I will admit I fully came around on Amanda by the end I kind of did like her but I will fully admit I don't ever need to see her again I feel I've seen everything she could possibly bring to Survivor but I will in Paul's in honor of our friend Paul say uh, Amanda was a positive contribution to survivor and i'm glad she was on it she was a better part of survivor history than russell was i will even say but i mean should I we think... say it all together m-o-n-t-a-n-a montana yeah i love I, you i love it don't worry paul you're gonna get wendy <laughs> joe next time so montana will still continue montana <laughs> loving it, <laughs> love it. m-o-n-t-a-n-a montana love it loving it <laughs> loving it <laughs> Good. We got a new state song. Yeah. Then you have to end with a cat fight. <laughs> <laughs> My head hurts. Okay. Which is which is actually like two cows like on a mesa somewhere. Like. Yeah. No. It's it's a bobcat fight, right? <laughs> sure. The animals or the construction equipment. Well, the joke works either way. Well done. All right, so we're going to go to episode twelve here. This is a double boot episode. We're going to lose Candace and Danielle. And I should point out one of the sillier things in the season, the episode titles. Have you guys noticed this? Yeah, like, what's their deal with ships? Yeah, it's, uh, what is a a sinking ship, jumping ship, and then loose lips sink ship, and then at this, like, ship happens? I don't know, but there's, there's like, three ship titles in a row. They just decided we're not going to try anymore here. Banana boat etiquette? <laughs> yes, so... So anyway, here we go. We're going to skim through this episode. This is a actually a fairly significant one in the episode. I kind of earned in the, in the season. I kind of forgot this. That we go basically, you know, Amanda's been voted out. There's only three heroes left, but Rupert and Colby are furious at Candace because she has flipped. And this is where you know uh, they just start going. What is it? Is it Rupert? I forget which one. They're com- they're complaining about Candace how much she sucks. 
And they said she's weak and she's pathetic and self-centered and greedy and manipulative and pitiful. Yeah. And it's funny because the heroes all hate Candace and all the girls on the villain side are like, well, if she'll flip that easily, we can't trust her. So we have to get rid of her, too. So Candace is the obvious choice now. Nobody wants her around. Well, what I love about this is Candace has become Jonathan Penner. And it's so interesting. And that look at what happened when Penner flipped is that, you know, Rupert and Colby essentially called her everything but rat cancer, you know, and. and to that point, you also have the majority that's like, oh, yeah, she's really flippant, and the other side really doesn't like her. We can earn some brownie points with them by voting her off. So Candace took a page out of the person she hate, she liked the least from her original season and decided to do the exact same thing. Yeah. I was reading yeah. – I don't know if it was an article that was written or if it was a conversation I had, and I forget. Um, but there was a, a someone who does uh, – who did extensive blogging um, uh, for the – Rob has a podcast network who talked about Candace and about how Candace is sort of misunderstood and sort of talked about how Candace's moves we sort of look at and sort of really kind of question like the mutiny in Cook Islands and, uh, uh, you know, the flip here in Heroes versus Villains. But it's tough because, you know, I think that Candace is aware of the fact that, like, you know, we didn't talk. We haven't talked about her a whole ton up until now. And so the idea is that she's there and maybe she can do a thing where she under the radars to the end. But it just, you know, she's getting lost in the shuffle and I'm I'm sure she feels uneasy about where she is and whatnot. And so, you know, it's not just a matter of, oh, I got so taken in by Russell, but she's like, here's a chance to maybe better myself in the game. And it didn't necessarily work out. And the story isn't about her. And so what we see on television is just, oh, Candace did a flip and now everyone hates Candace and now she's gone. And it's like, yeah, that's what happens. But it's like if you kind of look at it, you can sort of understand. It's sort of like with JT's letter. You can understand why Candace does it and you can understand why she does it in Cook Islands. It just doesn't pay off. And then it just doesn't look good. Yeah. Well, the problem is she's not a dynamic enough character for the narrative to ever be about her. So right. you just see, oh, she's screwed and she does these weird moves, but you don't realize why she's screwed. She's probably very icy and kind of kind of hard to deal with. I'm, that's what I'm guessing. But yeah, you never she's never a big enough character to get a full story arc. Yeah, and I agree. I think it's tough that, like, you know, she took a risk and the risk didn't pay off. I do feel bad that, like, she makes this move and then it immediately cuts to Jerry being like, all right, we don't need Candace anymore. <laughs> and it's like, oh, man, I feel really bad about that because, I mean, yeah, I mean, she technically is right. Had Russell really strong-armed Sandra and his plan worked, they technically did not need Candace's vote. So she ends up kind of sacrificing her relationship and burning bridges to the point where she's going to get to Ponderosa and the heroes are going to ice her out. For the mm -hmm. first night, they pull like a crystal cox and they like do not talk with her. They are that pissed off at her. And I do feel kind of bad that she wanted to make this move out of self-preservation. And I guess it was just such a tight five that anybody who broke rank out of that five was going to earn their ire. Right. Yeah. And, and and the thing is, is that I can understand why she did it. And, you know, we're all, you know, just as JT is like, well, I, you know, didn't feel super great. And I swung for the fences. Right. And it's like, this is Candace swinging for the fences. This is what she thinks is going to, you know, help her out. And I mean, the fact that it absolutely doesn't in all ways just shows that, well, it was it was not going to work out for her either way. But she tried something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she tried. Okay, so the rest of this episode is dedicated to A, everybody hating Candace, and B, Sandra's crusade against Russell. And I kind of forgot about this, how anti-Russell this whole episode is. It's really the whole rest of the season. 
is that, you know, the previously on Survivor has been saying, you know, Russell is amazing. Whenever Russell wants somebody to go, they go home. This one immediately starts with the only person to stand up to survive, to get to Russell and survive is Sandra. And we start talking about Sandra and how this is Sandra's story. And we immediately get Parvati saying, Russell's paranoid. That will be his downfall. And then Parvati and Probes also says, Russell wasted his idol. So Russell is just going to get shit on hardcore the rest of the season from here on out. And this is where we get the, the famous quote that Paul referenced earlier where <laughs> Rupert says, uh, first off, there are no other heroes. It's just me and Colby. And now he's going off on Russell. He's like, I'm going to expose Russell for being a piece of garbage. And he says, Russell could be worse than Johnny Fairplay. He is. I love that because it feels like Rupert like came to that conclusion while he was talking. <laughs> while he was talking, <laughs> literally just like when good people just like you know they talk out like they uh, you know they how, how do you say it you like talk you say what you're thinking out loud or I don't know how you how you yeah, phrase you, you, that. You, you, like, but, monologues. Uh, yeah. <laughs> he is. He is. But he also but he, his logic is like if I show his disgusting side, everyone will say, "Oh no, we don't want to work with him." When like again. People are realizing, oh, this is the reason why we want to take Russell to the end because, God, we talk about the Russell-Danielle stuff, but the way he treats Rupert here is terrible. And granted, yeah. Rupert comes at him being like, you're a disgusting human being for swearing on your kid's life. But Russell literally says, I don't give a shit about you or your family, which is like, that is in- insane jury management or lack thereof. Right. And he says, you know, you're such a dumbass, Rupert. And it's like, why are, why are, you don't have to say these things. <laughs> it's like people love to say this is the Russell defenders will say he's got a wonderful strategic game, but a bad social game. I'm like, but it's a strategy to call Rupert a dumbass to his face. That's not a good strategic game. And he just say this is one of the worst scenes I've ever seen on Survivor where, yeah. Ooh, look at you, the great Rupert. He's like, the second coming of Christ. You're such a dumbass, Rupert. I'm like, dude, that guy's going to be on the jury. And not only that, he's going to be a prominent member of the jury who will influence all the other heroes on the jury. Do not start challenging him and calling him an idiot and making fun of his whole image and character that he set up for the kids. That's ridiculous. And this is what Russell does. Again, great strategist, though. I, I, I hate to jump ahead seasons and I hate to sit here and talk about how great Boston Rob is or something like that. But in a couple of seasons, we're going to get Redemption Island, which, you know, they bring Rob back and they bring Russell back. And it's not even necessarily the the dichotomy between them on that season, which you can see. But let's even just take this moment where, like, Russell has a disdain for Rupert, which, hey, I can understand that. And he just says that, you know, he, he yells about his kids, calls him a dumbass to his face, does all these sorts of things, right? And then I just am thinking about Rob. I just love – it's one of my favorite, like, moments ever in Survivor, honestly, is in Redemption Island. It's it's kind of – it's that first vote where, like, he's on the beach and Ometepe is going to tribal council. And, you know, he's with them and he's, like, kind of this happy-go-lucky guy. And, you know, they sort of deflect the vote and they're voting off someone else. And, I mean, he literally, like, holds up the name in the, in the confessional booth and he looks at the camera and says, y'all are a bunch of amateurs. You know, this is so easy. And it's like, here he is disparaging everyone on his tribe, talking about how superior he is, but he's doing it to the camera in a confessional and not to them. Mm-hmm. Not to the jurors. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's finish this episode because I, I am going to throw a little curveball at you guys that I think this may end up being a five-part podcast. Are you cool with that? 
Love it. <laughs> Loving it. I could I could not have seen that coming. I know. Okay, so let's finish this up. Let's do Candice boot and then we'll sign off here. But so uh, this is a very uh, straightforward half of an episode here where we have an immunity challenge. They hold their arm up for the uh, the water bucket. This is the T-Bird, T-Bird Cooper Memorial Challenge. The tomorrow. I, love all these, I love all these dead survivors. Yes, keep going. <laughs> T-Bird. You know, I really miss T-Bird. She was a you – know, never, never mind. Um, so, yeah, so Parvati wins this one. I'll miss her eyes. <laughs> she had good eyes. I miss the fried chicken and mashed potatoes mostly. Everyone wimps out of this so quickly. Like Jeff says, like, oh, poverty lasted six hours in this challenge. This challenge lasts like 70 minutes because Jeff offers food temptations and nearly everybody jumps out except for poverty and Rupert. Even sight unseen. Yeah. So, yeah, poverty wins this challenge. And then Jeff goes off book here and says, here's a public idol clue for everybody because we need more idols in this game. Uh, It's by a burning bush. Go find it. Yeah, here's the idol clue. This is a turning point in the... No, sorry, I was reading from the <laughs> wrong document. Destroy this after reading. So they go out, everybody runs out and tries to find this idol back at camp, and Sandra finds it for some reason. And she's like, I'm going to keep it for myself because I'm so damn greedy. And she, like, hides it, hides it. But that's not the important part of the scene. The important part is Rupert coming up with a fake idol to trick Russell. As he says, I stuck me a rock in my pocket. Why does he say that like that? It's it's just one of the other catchphrases when you pull the string on Toy Rupert. I stuck me a rock in my pocket. But this is admittedly a very crafty on Russell on Rupert's part because, like Parvati said, paranoia is gonna be Russell's downfall. And Rupert comes into the camp just strolling in, and Russell's like, "I know that's exactly what the idol looks like in a pocket," and that's exactly what Rupert was going for, and it. That's literally the only – I wouldn't say that's the only reason he has – I guess it is because that's what makes them split the votes between Rupert and Candace, and that's how they're able to take advantage and send Candace, Candace home. Yes. So, yeah, again, like I said, the edit for Russell is not especially strong here. He's going to downward spiral as hard as possible for a quote-unquote survivor legend. Being outwitted by Rupert on a fake idol, that's got to be really high on the list of embarrassing things to happen to Russell. This is also, if we're talking about a historical thing, at least for me, because, you know, we're sitting here talking about Russell sort of in this past tense. And, you know, we've had years removed and we're sort of looking at this sort of thing. But I don't think that you can possibly talk about this time in Survivor history without talking about how, like, most of the Survivor community and also myself a bit included was sort of swept up in Russell mania. Right. Mm-hmm. He was he was touted as just this huge thing in Survivor. And he brought a lot of people to the game. Uh, He brought people back in that sort of lapsed watching Survivor and a lot of new fans. Like there's a lot of people that, you know, they start their, their fans of Survivor today and they started watching around heroes versus villains slash Samoa. So one of the first things they watched was Russell Hance doing Russell things. And, you know, you can look back at Samoa and basically go, oh, gosh, you can really see how Russell torpedoed himself and how he's not going to win and all of the bad things he did. But we didn't really note that so much at the time. Some people did. I'm not saying nobody did. But for the most part, we were all very impressed with Russell doing Russell things. And for the first part of Heroes versus Villains, we're continuing to be impressed by Russell. But yeah. now this episode is starting to show the warts in Russell's game. And I mean, I don't remember a lot of things uh, off the top of my head. Like, I remember a lot of Survivor. I'm not a Stump Paul kind of level of remember uh, things about Survivor. And, you know, I have to rewatch episodes when I'm doing research for uh, Historian's podcast because I have to remember some things that happened. But 
Russell calling Rupert a dumbass to his face is a thing that I will never forget. It's a thing that stuck out to me at the time. And this episode with him believing Rupert's idol in his pocket and stuff like that, you're starting to see, oh, maybe Russell has a lot of flaws in his game. Mm -hmm. Can I call BS on one part of what you just said? What? (laughs) I love because this is a survivor urban legend that has persisted for years that Russell brought a lot of new viewers to the show. If you look at the ratings, the ratings for the Russell seasons are lower than the ones around them. So I think the truth is he did bring in a lot of viewers, but a lot of people stopped watching because of him as well. The ratings with Russell are no better than any other season. It's, it's, that's, that's demonstrably true if you look at it. I've looked at that before because I've heard this. You're not the first person who said this, that he brings in all these viewers, but he really didn't. And if he did, other people were leaving it just as fast to pace. Yes, I just wanted to point but that I, out. But I, and I think, that's, I think that's exactly it. Yeah. It's not a matter of he boosted the ratings in some way. I never said that, Mario. I said he brought in a lot of new – because I yeah. think there's a turnover. He brought in a different element to the fan base. Let's put yes. it like that. <laughs> that's a good point. And, and that's, that's exactly what I'm saying. And I, yeah. and, I, I, and, I, and I didn't try to say it some other way. But I think, as I said, a lot of people started watching around this time. And their first hero in Survivor is Russell Hans. Yeah. I'm not saying that you did say that. I'm saying that is what people will hear when they listen to this. <laughs> I know I know what Russell fans hear. I also want to couch all this Russell Endgame discussion in the fact as well that this guy has basically played two back-to-back seasons. And so I mm-hmm. also do wonder how much of what he's doing here is just pure mental exhaustion and his brain eating itself. I mean, look at how he looked the first day in Samoa and how he looks now. Yeah. It's like two different people. I can only imagine just how much mental degradation is going on where maybe a Russell in the beginning of the game of Samoa, yes, he still is doing stupid crap, but maybe he doesn't call someone a dumbass to their face and say, I don't give a shit about you. Maybe it's just this Russell is so tired and fed up of everybody around him that much like Rupert, he's monologuing and has no filter as to what he thinks about people. I can't imagine what Russell went through all those days, you know, like Rupert yeah. did two back to back. But I mean, Rupert did get out kind of early in Pearl Islands, like not early, early, but he didn't go all the way at the end, clearly like Russell did uh, and such, you know, and and Russell for for all intents and purposes, Russell was working hard all of these days that he played Survivor uh, in Samoa and in Heroes versus Villains. So that's it's something that I don't necessarily think about a lot mike but it's something that does come to my head kudos to russell in this stretch like that is a brutal stretch to play this game for 70 plus days in a row yeah well we'll not in a row not in a row but you know what i mean close enough yeah well we'll have more to say about russell when we get to the end here i want to wrap this one up here so at the end of this uh they think rupert has the idol so they don't vote for rupert they try to split the vote they vote out candace and candace's wonderfully villainous story arc two episode story arc ends and she is voted out and Again, it's kind of one of these good riddance, like the heroes didn't like her, the villains didn't like her. And like you said, she gets iced out of Ponderosa and one of the more forgettable characters in the season. Until you watch it again, you realize how pivotal she was here in keeping Sandra from flipping. So she was important. You just tend not to remember her too much. I think that, I mean, it also cannot be said enough how good Rupert and Colby played in this round in particular, where... They overhear the villains talking about, okay, let's split the vote 3-3 between, uh, they eventually say 3-3 between Rupert and Colby. I think Jerry, again, feeling a bit wary about Candace, ends up convincing them to split between Rupert and Candace. Colby overhears, goes to Rupert, and they say, wait a minute, 
if we just throw our votes, they basically pull what uh, what Alex did to Mookie in Survivor Fiji of, hey, if we take advantage of their split vote, we can vote Candace out. And so they're able to actually control the vote and vote out Candace five to three, which, yes, they're voting out another hero, but they're vote- they're keeping the two of them in the game, which is, mm-hmm. is pretty crazy considering how much in the hole that they were. So I really do feel like this first half of the episode – uh, they were playing particularly well. And there's a great confessional from Colby where he goes, I can honestly say I'm proud of the way I played the game. And then he holds his vote up to the camera. Can you? Like, it sound, it's like very much like an anti-drug commercial in terms of just the drama behind it. And the fact he doesn't reveal the vote until halfway through. <laughs> and that will only be the second best delayed confessional Colby will have in this season. <laughs> All right. So anything left to say about Candace before we sign off here? I'm really glad she'll come back for another time because then I can actually learn to like her because I did not like her until her third time out. So I have nothing more to say about her on this season. <laughs> Wait, you liked her when she was cursing out Brad Culpepper? Yes, my, it makes me actually like her. Like it totally changed t- t- changed my uh, tune on her. I think th- We're going to have words about this, Paul. Well, I think, I think okay. maybe what Paul's alluding to is the fact that, like we spoke about before, Kenneth uh, maybe was not the most magnetic personality her first times yeah. out, and she was showing at least some other sides there i think that uh you know it's interesting that the two people that go in this double boot episode are the two people that were most questionable when coming onto this cast and i think if people were asking why is canis a hero i don't think they left answering that question how canis gets voted out <laughs> but to be fair canis herself was like i never consider myself a hero or a villain i consider myself a human and i feel like that informs also a lot of her gameplay choices as opposed to somebody like rupert who is all about like i am a hero therefore everything i do must be good there are no more heroes. So, you got anything, Jay? Uh, no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> With that, I believe we're going to wrap this up. And I had originally planned Heroes versus Villains as a four-parter. It's now going to be a five-parter. We are going to sign this off here. And uh, that was not our plan. I'm just making an executive decision here because we, I, I, I want to do justice to the end of the season. Yeah. And this Danielle episode is too big. I, I, we have to give Danielle some, some time yes. here. So I agree. So, yeah. So I think we should sign off here. Anything else you guys have to say before we uh, send Jay on his merry mission? Oh, Jay has an, an agenda today. He has well, to do well, before you do that. Can you make sure you ask Russell first and get permission? Yes, I will. I will write Russell a letter in JT style with girly handwriting on a polar bear and I will ask him. I feel like this episode was a real pivotal time. (laughs) We're all shaking hands here. Congratulations, guys. It's it's a turning point. It's a a time to do it. (laughs) I shook the hell out of his hand. All right. So I guess I will sign off. Uh, As always, uh, I am Mario Lanza. I'm Jay Fisher. I'm Mike Bloom. Paul Oslison. And you think I'm going to end the episode now. He is. Talk to you guys later. Goodbye. <laughs> Russell, read in complete privacy. <laughs> this is a huge turning point in this game. This is not fake. I wouldn't waste your time or mine. Hopefully, we are on the same page. Play the idol tonight. For sure. To save yourself. Save myself. Because clearly, you're on the outside of an all-devouring female alliance. Right. I put that part in myself. All the girls should be writing your name down. So act like you know you're going home. I can't believe he's writing all this. He's telling me what to do. He's, he's giving me pointers. I think you should write Parvati's name down and send her home. <laughs> Why is everyone throwing me under the bus? They don't even know what's going on over here. Okay. 
iPad Plus Yo will remain strong till the girls are done with. We can. We can then work on getting ourselves in the final three. Oh, I wonder what that means. Big promises, JT. Yeah. Hopefully, I can trust you and you're not truly a villain. <laughs> yes, I am. Let's do this together. <laughs> See you soon. BFF forever. <laughs> XOXO, JT. Destroy this right when you finish reading. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Loving it.